Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Hi, this is Bob, 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 v, 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 Vila. And now, it's time for the show, This Old Dungeon. The show where grognards go to get their grog on. Between the two of us, we're going to get a lot of stuff done. We're going to kick some ass. We're going to be awesome. Featuring your hosts. Hi, this is Bill Barsh. I am the managing director of Paysetter Games and Simulations. Look at this. It's a plumber's nightmare. Hi, this is Edwin. I'm a longtime cast member of Skype of Cthulhu, and I am the 5E editor for Frog God Games. Somebody here call a carpenter? This is Lou Al Lou. I could charitably call myself a game designer and game publisher, but definitely a veteran role player 35 plus years. We work on it the rest of the night, we get it together. We can do this, right? There's no way in hell we can do it. Good evening, Dungeoneers. Uh, this is Lou Alu, and we're here with another episode of This Old Dungeon. With me tonight are our regular co hosts, fellas. Hey everyone. Howdy folks, everyone here. And then we got another special guest tonight, guy that I had the pleasure to meet a few years back at North Texas, Eddie Bartlett. How you doing tonight? Hey, pretty good. How are you guys? Pretty good. So Eddie, uh, you got a couple different feathers in your hat. You want to kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and what all you got going on? Sure, I do. The Long Con, that's where most people would know me uh, from the RPG convention, doing that around here. The best RPG convention in Northeast Texas to make it all the specifics. You've got to get all the qualifiers in there. Uh, also do the no class podcast uh, with my uh, con buddy. And then uh, also I just wrote my first adventure and got it out there, which is carnage in the casino for MCC. It's a funnel funnels of fun. Yeah. I had a awesome. good time with that uh, last summer at the convention. Uh, I was glad to see that get out uh, as quick as what you had to come uh, through Kickstarter and on to fulfillment, man. That was a huge, quick turnaround. <laughs> yeah, well, you had a, a big role to play in that, so I give you uh, a lot of credit for that. <laughs> oh, thanks, but I, I don't know that I did much. But uh, Before we get going into our usual banter, because uh, these are things that I, I've, I've never thought to ask you before, but... Um, so you and Matt, your your long con uh, co-host and your podcast uh, co-host, um, where did you guys meet? How did that all start? Oh, um, well, maybe it's a funny story. Do you guys remember when there was a meetup? I think they're still around. Sure. So, uh, but um, I was in the military at the time. I was at Barksdale Air Force Base, and there was an episode of Community where they played D and D. If you remember that one. Yep, I won D&D, yeah. Yeah, so many things, so many things. And so some of the people in my office said, do you know anything about D&D? They were discussing it. And I had not played since the second edition days. I had like a 15-year break in gaming. So we started playing, and we started playing Temple of Elemental Evil. (laughs) (laughs) Who would have thought? (laughs) And uh, as those guys were moving and their interests were waning, I said, 
I, I can see that they're, they're not going to be into this forever, but this has reignited something for me that I just want to play so bad again. So I created a meetup group, and like later that day, Matt Googled uh, RPG in Shreveport, Louisiana, and that came up. So, I mean, it was same day he found it just randomly searching something out in the cosmos, told him, Google search that. And uh, that's where we met up through. And then I had a meeting scheduled for like the Saturday coming up. So he decided to do me one better and do it on Friday. So I'm like, <laughs> who is this jerk that's trying to get ahead of me and do something? So I came out that Friday night, met him and our uh, other good buddy, Gary. And that's where all the trouble started, as they say. <laughs> now does gary come with you all to north texas have i ever had a chance to meet him no he's off and on but he's been to maybe two or three the funny story with that is uh after we played in bill barsh's tournament we were like we've got to organize a crack team to come back and defeat this <laughs> so that's when we started dragging all of our friends into rpg yep. <laughs> so they could get barshed along with us <laughs> It's a verb for us. A lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are awesome. It's just a, it's just an absolutely fun group. Yeah. Well, we won, and that yep. got the monkey off of our back. You did. <laughs> just a, a distant knowledge of the tournament. I, I know that it's, it's played on like a tabletop of a master maze, kind of like the, the three-dimensional dungeon kind of pieces. Is that right? This was the first year I did it that way. It's normally not. It's normally traditionally um, uh, D and D theater of the mind. Oh, okay. uh, although we, you know, we have the big the big maps. And we can use miniatures and that kind of thing. But this year, I actually, uh, um, Jared Nielsen uh, donated a, just a crap load of dungeon tiles, so we kind of did a visual dungeon thing. I love. They used to run that back in the '70s. It was actually called the Visual Dungeon. So. That's kind of where I ran went with the tournament this year. Instead of it being a group against group against group. Uh, kind of tournament style, think like a traditional D and D tournament. This one we just did um, um, individual play. So there were six to eight players each session, and it was just a gold grab. Whoever got the most grab just kept track during the whole weekend, and uh, came up with uh, a winner and actually a loser, because you could actually. So every time you died, you could actually spend, I think it was fifty gold pieces or something like that. To come back to life and start over at the beginning of the uh, 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 at the start of the dungeon um, set, so we actually had players go negative. It was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. We had, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun this year. So this and is the first course, to get it that way. But yeah, traditionally, we, it's a it's a normal D and D tournament, a la the old TSR tournaments. So we've been doing that now for I don't know. God, God's got to be this will be the twelfth year of the AD and D tournament. I think it's actually the longest-running D&D tournament in the country right now uh, nice. for first edition slash old-school D&D. But we, of course, at the Long Con, with permission, knocked off that uh, the 3D-printed one, the yeah. kick in the doors and steal the loot, and that was very well-received here, too. And our uh, top winner got 100 bucks to go along with it and a trophy. That is so awesome. Because, like, hey, you've always done the tournaments. I like yeah. that somebody at the con has D&D bragging rights. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're, uh, there should be a winning team or a winning person or something like that where you can go, like, I won D&D. I won. Yeah, absolutely. And so we give those certificates away every year and that kind of thing. But what we're doing this year at Texas, I'm actually go back going 
we're we're uh, printing banners for each year of the tournament, and we're going to put the winners' names, um, the best I can dig nice. them all up, on the actual banner. We're going to hang all the banners because we sponsor a room now, so we're going to hang oh, all the okay. banners from. Uh, like a with the winners' names on it, so yeah, they got, they got, they're gonna, yeah, they're gonna have bragging rights in front of everybody else. So C double D. I'll make sure you got the banner with my name, man. Well, we'll make sure it happens, man. So yeah, so because we usually pro- we typically do produce the tournament in book form and sell them off at the end of the at the end of the convention. Some of them become full into the product line. Some of them are just like one off for the conventions, but. Uh, so they, they have full color covers and all that kind of thing. So it's uh, it, they're, they're, it's going to be neat. We're excited to do it. But yeah, I, that was a fun that was a fun tournament. I think we just named it really simple. Uh, Kill the monster, steal the treasure. I think that was actually the name of the tournament this year. Yeah, the thing I liked about it is after you play it once, you've worked out all your strategies and you can't wait to play it again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because there is there's a lot of strategy that builds up. Uh, after you played it once or twice, of yeah, you definitely go. Things. If only I had done this. Yeah, yeah. So do the do the monsters and traps all respawn exactly how they were the first time through? So you kind of know what you're facing. Yeah, they do, but I don't let people replay um, the tournament. But if your character dies in session, I think that's kind of where Eddie's coming from. Oh, like, okay. You kind of figure yeah. out like halfway through. Oh, you know, maybe I'm being too cautious, or maybe I'm going too fast, or or that kind of thing, or maybe I need to go over here where there's nobody else. I mean. There was it was uh and I, we're getting way off sidetrack here, but it uh it, it <laughs> oh, was a lot cool. of fun and we had we had people like uh, going into the room and I saw like a these are like third or fourth level characters this was low third level I think it was these were low level characters and it, you know they they this guy he looks in the room and there's a gelatinous cube in there that's pretty deadly for just one character to battle right but he would like we had people like kick the door open and have the thing chase him through the dungeon and then lead him to where the other characters are. <laughs> To attack the other characters so he could escape, and that we had a lot of people were doing all kinds of stuff like that. I think that's, I think if I'm not trying to speak for Eddie, but I think that's what people's strategy was was not only how to maximize your own goal, but how to screw everybody else at the same time. So, yeah, it's the ultimate murder hobo tournament this that past year. Yeah, right. and having chasers in it is so great too. Oh, gosh. I had a uh, Umber Hulk in ours that was tearing through the walls. Oh yeah, <laughs> so that's fun. My fave right there, favorite monster, Umber Hulk. I love it. Oh what? yeah. It's all about this year was definitely all about having fun and just uh, it was a lot less stressful for, I think, uh, in, oh, yeah. in, as, a, as a standard tournament where where Eddie, when Eddie's group played, it was definitely you know, it was it was problem solving combat. It was all that, you know, the old school point system, you, you know, group against group kind of thing. And I re- usually run it for we usually have about four groups run through the tournament every year, different groups. So next year we're going back to that. I'm going to go back to a. Uh, um, Mind. Haven't had enough TPKs recently, so we're going to go back to that <laughs> format this year. I keep saying next year. It's I keep forgetting it's uh, we're in yeah. January, so it's coming right up. Yeah, yeah, six months. Yeah, it'll be here fast. It's, uh, that Texas convention always it's it's sneaky because you think it's in June, right? You just got June in the mind. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always that yeah, first weekend in June and Memorial Day is usually the weekend before it. So the the two weeks just all of a sudden you're like oh my god I'm got to be in Texas in two or three weeks, and we're from Michigan so we got to ship a lot of stuff down and we we got to make sure our calendar is up to date when we're getting close to that convention because coordinating our vendor stuff and everything else from Paysetter is a it's not a challenge we've been doing it for 14 years down there but it it does tend to sneak up on you because it is that first week of June and this year it's like 
the first through the fifth or something like that. It's it's really, literally really, the first yeah. week. Uh-huh. So Eddie, how about the long con? What, what's the origin of that? Oh well, you really gave me a good uh, segue to that uh, from Bill because we started going to NTRPG Con, and we said, why are we only doing this once a year? Could we do something like this in our backyard? And the answer was yes. <laughs> and it was kind of uh, to get people from NTRPG too, so you could see them again. You know, it's that there's only one time a year that we get together and hang out. But what if there was two? That's why ours <laughs> is towards the end of the year. And we do get a lot of the NTRPG crowd too, and it is good to see them again. But yeah, it was coming back home from an NTRPG con, and we're like, we're going to do this. We're going to do one. And uh, I always joke that at the beginning there, I think Doug Ray had more invested in our con than we did. <laughs> so it was always good to see him come down too. For sure. Yeah. I'm actually retiring this year from work, so real life work. So I think my schedule is finally going to open up. I'm going to get down to a long con. So. Oh, we'd uh, love to have you. We'd love no, to have you torture uh, some of our players for a change. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, we definitely see life is getting shorter. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's uh, such a great group. I mean, that uh, yeah. like I said, the uh, NTX and and I'm sure Longcon's the same way. It's just uh, and Lou, you've been there, Edwin. It's just uh, it's a family convention. I call it. It's not it's not like a game convention. I mean, it is, but it's uh, it's, it, people just sit around all weekend and shoot the shit. You know, it doesn't even have to be a lot of rolling dice. There's tons of it that goes on, obviously, but. Uh, it's a social event as is as much of the convention, which makes them uh, just absolutely awesome. And everybody's your friend, man. Nobody's yeah. Yeah. There are no strangers. Now, now you can't walk Some down the hallway GMs, without talk, stopping and talking to people, right? So it's awesome. So uh, crazy people like myself that occasionally entertain the idea of, well, hey, there's no real local cons. Why don't I start a con? <laughs> <laughs> What do they need to be aware of? What What are the biggest hurdles there, man? You got to do it for the right reason. If you do it because you want to make some money, because you're going to be the next Gen Con, <laughs> forget about it. Because just, I mean, even talking with the NTRPG guys, they were like, "Yeah, there's no this, there's no big money in this." Kind of like uh, our self-published stuff. There's no big money in that. It's for the love of the game. So, are you? Can you do it? Do you have a venue that you can afford? Because that kind of segues into uh, – we had about a 10-minute episode of the No Class podcast, which I don't know if you heard that one. Oh, yeah. But we talked about the day the long con died, and we had done everything for the hotel that had uh, let us be there for – I think it was about three years. But in the time of the COVID, they had even begged us to put on a con for them. So we did a long con spring to help the local economy. And then this year when we went to renegotiate, they're like, sorry, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, that's one of those things. It, it's it's rough, but you've got to do it because your heart's in it to build the gaming community, and then you've got to be able to find a good venue for it. And I think for us, a lot of times it's going to be a hotel because you want to be able to take the elevator home. You want to be able to have some drinks and shoot the shit at the end of the night. So, yeah. So. Yeah, oh, you know, especially like – and I don't want to speak out of turn about long con because I, I haven't been to one, but I definitely, like I said, I need to get to one, especially when you're talking about conventions that appeal more to the old school gamers, I think, or or even just, you know, an older demographic. 
you you need that hotel convention thing because mm-hmm. I, I know the older I get, I I never want to stay off quote unquote property, right? I want to be if I'm at a convention, I want to be in a hotel connect either directly connected to it or I can walk right over there. I don't want to be driving and dealing with all that kind of garbage. As a vendor too, it's it's a whole other thing, but just as an individual. So I, I think that's a key point that, that Eddie brings out about venue space. Um, having a great partner, it, it will make all the difference in the world. And I can speak a lot about conventions. I helped run WinterCon in Michigan, back here in Michigan for 10, 12 years. We ran our origins here in Detroit. So I was all over the spectrum uh, running game conventions. Now, a lot different back then, I think, than this today. But a lot of things do stay the same and we we used oakland university here in michigan which is uh you know it's a division one university it's got giant dorm space but back then there wasn't a lot of hotels around it but that was a great venue for us um because of the the area that we had and the affordability um and then it was just a, like i said a giant a campus university campus so you had food available and all that stuff there's so many things to think about with a game convention other than mm-hmm. just running games and really, it's all the, the games will run themselves at some point. It's everything else that you have to worry about, the logistics. But, Lou, you need to do it. <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah, I'm... you just got to find a weekend that's free, too, on top of that. That's the Bingo. other thing I hear. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if you tried to do your con when there's no other convention going on, hang it up. So there's <laughs> there's up. a few that we try and make sure that we're not like game hole is really close to us. And we might have some little overlap with them. But that's it. What uh, w- without you know getting into specifics, what would you say is kind of like about what you're looking at having to put out capital wise to get one of these off the ground? That's a that's a really good question because you have to figure out this too. What kind of convention are you going to be? Are you going to be strictly an RPG convention? Are you going to have board games? Are you going to have uh, guests signing autographs? Are you going to be an everything to everybody con? So that right there is going to make a huge difference. Are you going to try and bring the critical role guys down? You know, somebody that's really, you know, expensive guests or we did ours very, very minimal. And I think even that we were still a couple of thousand into it without any hotel costs. Just like you got to buy all the grid maps. You got to set up your web presence. So there's uh, advertising. There's just so many things that go into it behind the scenes. Follow-up question. What Uh-oh. would you say is like the minimum number of people that you want, you know, that, that would consider themselves staff for a convention when oh. it's starting off? The, that one's easy, too, because <laughs> that's pretty much what we have. We've got me and Matt doing basically everything. Oh, wow. Uh, greeting you at the door, washing the dishes, playing, running the games for you. So we get help here and there, but for the most part, it's a two-man show. Yeah, you, it's surprising how few people you can have to actually run a game convention. Like I said, we, we when we ran Michigan and WinterCon, uh, when I was still part of that peer back in the day, and, it, and it's it's changed. And but those conventions were probably the third, fourth, fifth, sixth largest conventions in the country at the time. We were averaging between two and four thousand people. I mean, this is I'm talking late seventies here, so that was a lot of people. Gen Con was barely bringing in five thousand back then, and Origins the same way. So, um, 
but we could run a convention. We had a larger staff than two because <laughs> that wouldn't have worked. Yeah. But you, it's surprising if, if you've got two, three, four, five people that kind of are running everything behind the scenes. If you can get yourself half a dozen volunteers um, to help you run registration and, and all that kind of stuff. You can you can run a game convention with with five you know five hundred attendees without an issue without any issue at all. But uh, yeah, if you're thinking about it, I would say find yourself a buddy or two to go in yeah. with instead of like we're going to run this by committee, where there's like there's thirty people that have to make a decision on this. hundred percent, yeah. MDG, we we did it with there was three people, you know, mm -hmm. in it, that that were at the top of the pyramid, and then we had another four or five that were um, where I was at. I was in that four or five group were mostly the help will run the convention, but the decision makers were the top three guys. And, and, and that's what you have to have. I agree hundred percent because, you know, it's just death by a million cuts if you do it any other way. Yeah. And uh, how deep is your GM pool? Do you right. have a lot of GMs that, you know, in the local area, or have you done a lot of networking already to find those guys? You know, Lou, I, I also, I think a good, a good resource for this is, is um, Tom Wilson. Yeah. And and um, Lloyd Metcalf because they both run real small local conventions with you know the one day shots is uh... kind of how they're starting theirs you know just a one day convention yep that, that you can dip your toe in the water without the shark biting your leg off right <laughs> so that's you know they might be real good resources to talk to too because um, I know Long Con's definitely got a larger presence than that. So we started as a one day as well. So that's a good point okay. that you make. Start as okay. a one day. Yeah. I'm just thinking of kind of where you're at now. So again, my point of reference sucks sucks because I need to be there. So um I'll make it happen this year. Um but they're the, you know those those guys would be good to talk to too. Now they're in they're up in the northeast. So talking dollars and Lloyd, cents. Right down the road from be, me. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Realize yep. you're up that way. So you know they their 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 economy scale is going to be different than probably yours, just because the I think costs in the Northeast can be significantly higher than mm -hmm. other parts. You know, other than you get out into the far west, but you know, middle of the country, we're a different ball game. Mm -hmm. Now the good thing is I think there's tons of venues now. Yeah. Almost all these hotels have got conference space, convention space, even you know. A, 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 you can find a Holiday Inn Express, you know, that could hold a convention with 100 people. Well, I mean, Lloyd found a, a pretty cool little, just it's a small town inn that had a, has a, a big barn out back. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was, you know, it was a real, real homie. I went to, I guess it was the AppleCon. I think I went to their first, the first AppleCon. Um, and uh, during apple picking season in Maine, I mean, it was, uh, it was pretty hard to beat. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I think the, I think, you know, your, your thing of coming up with a, uh, university campus and, you know, Lloyd with the, with this sort of, uh, sort of like a bed and breakfast, but, but a farmhouse kind of place. And, you know, you can be flexible and creative, especially if you're being small into what kind of venue, you know, once you get up to a few hundred people, then I think you really do need a proper hotel convention center type thing to do yeah. it easily because yeah. mm -hmm. they have all the. That's why you don't need the staff is because you're relying on the hotel and the convention center staff to actually do a lot of that to be lifting. Yeah, do all um, your tables. You know, to make sure there's food and tables and yeah. 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 
Yeah, Don't no. overlook the food part. <laughs> yeah. It's a big deal nowadays. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, tacos. Oh wait, sorry. North yeah. North Texas, the year of the, the the first year of the COVID was uh, it was like nothing. I was like oh, yeah, across brutal. the highway to Denny's all the time. That you know that is uh, the Westin is a fantastic convention space, but your food options have always been terrible there. Uh, the before they were there, they were at the Marriott, which isn't too far away. Uh, that was a that had everything with it. You could walk mm-hmm. to twenty different restaurants if you wanted to. Carry out everything was everything was right there. That's the only knock on NTX is the Westin, um, especially during COVID is tough. But um, there's well, it nothing there. Sounds like there's they've been that, remodeling now for a few years. If they yes. had the restaurant there that you're supposed yeah. to order. Yeah. 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 It's a you know you can order carry on all that, but the only place you're going to is that you can walk to is essentially that Denny's across the street. And I don't think they've cleaned it in the three or four years we've been going to that. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Oh my gosh. I can't believe how run down it is compared to three or four years ago when we first, first moved to the Westin. So, but it's a big deal. Everyone talks about it. It's one of the first things you start a convention. The first, one of the first threads in one of your forums is going to be, where do I get food and what's the, what's a good restaurant? How do I get there and all that? We'll, we'll go into our gaming banter in a minute. But I just, I, you know, I get on a topic and I just like to pick, pick, pick. I, you know, figure. Yeah, we're gonna about talk uh, about this forever. One more thing. One more thing. So, uh, <laughs> so where are you at now, Eddie? You and Matt, is your plan growing the convention, or are you kind of like, this is what we like, this is where we're happy at, and if it grows, it grows, whatever. But we're not trying for growth. Actually. This year, we're going to be making the biggest push for growth because of what happened with our hotel situation. The new venue. This is going to be the year that we're going to ask people to come out and support us and let the hotel know that you people want this in the local area. Because if people don't want it, then we won't get a decent rate, and we won't have any kind of priority on getting the space. Because that's what happened to us is they booked somebody else in as fast as they could. Um, the biggest we will ever get, though, is probably half of an NTRPG, and that's – it's both because it would be very hard for us to get a space here that big and also by design because we do kind of want to be that second one of the year and the kind of homecoming sort of thing, and we just don't need – and it would be way too many people for the two of us to handle, and we want to stay at that type of size. So we're going to grow a little, but I just don't see us getting past, like, 250. All right, so let's get into gaming. So uh, what, what's everybody been up to? What's on your tables nowadays? Or uh, are we still kind of getting back from the holiday uh, you know, hiatus here? I have been uh, enjoying the hell out of about 8 or 12 hours a week of Stonehell Dungeon as a player. It's a, uh, a group that's, I don't know, there's probably about 12 or 10 of us and, you know, uh, four or five of us at a time, uh, you know, find a time and make a game happen. Um, and there's so many crazy story threads going on and the, the faction, in the dungeon of, you know, the goblins against the kobolds and there's been uh, religious upheaval and miracles and like, just, I don't know. It's just been a really crazy fun game of, uh, we're not at all what I was expecting from sort of a, uh, I mean, it's sort of the, I don't know, for me is one of the best examples of a, I mean, effectively it's a dungeon dive, right? It's just a straightforward dungeon crawl, except it's been turned into uh, just because of the way the GM's running it and the way the players have been reacting. 
um, into some pretty high drama, um, exciting story kind of stuff. And a lot of it, you know, is stemming out of the random roles and all that. So that, that's just been a hoot. I mean, that's really made my, my winter break. What are some of the logistics on that? I mean, you said there, there's up to 12 people that, that are involved in it. And uh, at times you get up to eight or more hours of play within a week. So basically the GM uh, says, hey, this is when I'm available during the week. And uh, he's, a, he's a professor, so he's been available a fair bit over break. And uh, we basically put together, you know, so he's been running probably three or four, four hour sessions uh, online, all of it. Uh, but three or four, four hour sessions a week and takes, I think it's up to five players. Yeah, five players plus him. Uh, for any given session. And so, you know, it's just kind of a well, more or less first come first serve, but he tries to, you know, make sure that when he sets up the times that different people are available for, for different ones of them. Now is that, so is it kind of like a, what they call a West marshes where it's uh, you know, whoever's available jumps in and the, you know, what happens there then affects the next session, but it's things are set up. So it doesn't matter which characters are involved in each session. Each session's kind of self-contained to itself. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's definitely taking some inspiration from that. He's set up some basically the base conceit is that you always start and end in town. So that, you know, basically uh, whatever group is going out, they leave at the morning, they arrive at the dungeon at noon, and they do whatever they're going to do. And then for the most part, it's sort of a finger snap, boom, magic, you're home. Uh, end of the day uh, one of the things that's been interesting so we've just been exploring uh so the the first level of stone hell i think it's 10 level dungeon plus the sort of exterior level and then there's some uh anyway the first level even is just huge uh we've barely gotten in a little bit to the second level but one of the things that he's starting to think about is okay what happened I don't know, in six months or whatever, when we're down on level three at the end of the session, or you're down on level four, or more confusingly, you got yeah. teleported somewhere. Well, you got teleported, you don't know where you are. So he's trying to think about some some sort of dial mechanic to sort of figure out what happens when you're trying to leave the dungeon, right? So either, either you can decide, well, we're just going to leave, you know, it's half an hour before the end of the session. We're going to start going upstairs, and he'll do the random monster encounters, et cetera. Or there might be a, you know, a table that basically says, okay, well, you roll this and you lose 20% of your treasure before you get home, or you, you get injured and you can't go, you're, that character can't go on the next adventure or whatever. There'll be some sort of, because like right now, you know, we're pretty well near the entrance. So saying, yeah, you leave and you go home is not that, it doesn't stretch things much. But you can sort of imagine when you're, you know, <laughs> you're, Four, five, you've been teleported down. into a secret chamber and you're like, well, you're, you're home now. Huh. Uh, but yeah, so it takes a lot from the, um, I guess, from the West Marches. And I don't know, I guess it is really, because we, we do have, you know, when we start the four-hour session, we have kind of a goal in mind. You know, we're going to go deal with some undead or we're going to go uh, find this missing uh, bandit or whatever it is. So it is kind of, yeah, the players there and then. He's done a, and I think this may be part of Stonehell, but he sort of uh, brought in the the kobold maintenance crew, so that the dungeon, uh, you know, repairs itself pretty well. Um, although, but we definitely see each other's 
uh, effects on the factions. You know, one group pissed off Dwarven Architects, or yeah, and uh, and they're they're just grumpy as all get out now. They were super friendly for you know months, and now they're <laughs> now they refuse to talk to anybody. <laughs> Eddie, Bill, you guys been up to anything? I know Bill. Last time uh, we talked, you were you you had your hands full with finishing out things for Paysetter for the year and in the travel and stuff. Anyway, we're just uh, fulfilling, still fulfilling Kickstarters. I'm working on a couple other projects. So uh, the holidays, I was out of town for two weeks, so I haven't done any in-person gaming or even virtual gaming. Um, just uh, hanging around doing that kind of thing, So, which is enough, <laughs> honestly, for me right now. So uh, I enjoy writing, so that's uh, that's an easy uh, mulligan for me. <laughs> Eddie, how about you? Oh, man, you know, I've always got it going on. I was uh, looking at my a game table the other day, and I've got three or four different system books out. I was like, that's just crazy. But we're doing uh, fifth edition right now. We're doing Savage Worlds Dead, Deadlands. And I just started with my Osric group. We're going to do some of the Green Ronin Song of Ice and Fire. So I don't know if you guys are, have played that at all, but just rolling up the house itself. That was a ton of fun. I highly recommend that to you. Even if you're like, I'll never play this game. Just rolling up the house was so much fun. Yeah, I'm sort of kind of in Bill's boat where uh, I had the finally got all the Kickstarter stuff put together to ship out. And then uh, I've been just bitten by the writing bug lately. <laughs> There's the awesome. But uh, so, yeah, I've been been more producing stuff than getting a chance to enjoy it. I've got a friend that's been running the Ravenloft campaign a couple hours a week. So I've at least gotten to do some gaming there. But uh, nice. it's just been fun. Yeah, I've got to get uh, got to get I got to stop working on gaming stuff and actually prepare my home game for this weekend. I've had, we've been off for five weeks and I'm suddenly realizing, oh, holy shit, they're going to got a whole new area of the world they're going to. I got to figure out what's there <laughs> <laughs> sometime this week. And that, there's a daunting task for you. But just, uh, you know, having that five-week break, I've, I've had stuff like that happen where, you know, you've, you've got your story going and then, okay, holidays come. And then trying to yeah. trying to fit right back into that groove and get it going again the way it was, uh, it's a little bit daunting. It is. And luckily it was a good, you know, they basically had pissed off all the local government and they headed off up into the mountains. So, it's, you know, it's, it's a good time to start something new. And the real... Yeah. My question I have to figure out is, does something happen to them on the way to the mountains, or do we just want to be in the mountains? I think I'm going to drop the, uh, the Caves of Chaos on them in the mountains and see how long it takes for them to recognize where I they are. <laughs> That'll be kind of fun. Love it. All right. Well, we're, we're going to move forward in our next segment. Uh, so we got the uh, Grail Quest coming up. Go and tell your master that we have been charged by God with a sacred quest. Grail quest. All right. Most of you guys know what we're doing here. Grail quest. Uh, what is it you're looking for in gaming? Either trying to accomplish, trying to figure out, or actually physically seeking product of. What do we got? Oh, you got something for us this, <laughs> this time around? I, you know, right now, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of taking taking that whole time off. Although I, I'm, I'm a guy, I'm always perusing eBay or RPG auction, so... If I see something that that catches my eye, I grab it. Um, I, I am kind of looking to get my hands on a what is this? It's the first print Boot Hill uh, Digest size book. I've got one, but it's really ratty and bad. 
So it, it tails into another project I'm working on. So I kind of want to grab another uh, uh, copy, but I wanna, I've always wanted to upgrade mine. So that's kind of what I'm in the market for. But that's a that's going to take me a year or two years to find what I'm looking for because they don't come up all that often. But uh, I put that on my big watch list. So that's it for me right now. I'm kind of I have sometimes I have to take a step back, unfortunately. So, but I still just back a bunch of Kickstarters. Makes me feel good. All right, so listeners, <laughs> director of Base Sitter Games is looking for a Boot Hill copy for a project. He says, "I'll let you all do the math on that. I don't know what's going on there, but I got some imagination. Don't worry about that." <laughs> How about anyone else? Anything you guys are looking for? I got a couple for you if you want to hear them. Yeah. I want to hear them. Absolutely. Um, the one thing I was going to say, you kind of uh, got on this a little bit, Bill, was for your grails, do you want to find them out in the wild or just on the internet? Because that's one of the things that I try to limit myself to, to finding it in person, to make it a little, the chase a little bit harder, but I'm not <laughs> looking for ultra rare stuff either. I, I always prefer buying it at like uh, the Gen Con auction or your, you know, game hall auctions always got some great stuff. North Texas always got some great stuff. So that's why I'm saying that the boot Hill one, I'm, if I see one online that, that I think I can jump on, I'll, I'll do it. But there it's, it's going to be, there's going to be a, such a premium on those. Usually uh, that particular book doesn't come up very often. Um, so I'm probably just going to, it'll, it'll pop at Gen Con or game hall or North Tech or even make, Gary kind of a little less. They tend not to have as, as great of an auction as far as real old stuff goes. Oh, um, but I, I'm the same way, Eddie. I, I I love the hell out of buying stuff at auctions. I mean, I can't even tell you how many hundreds and hundreds of hours I spent in Gen Con auctions since 1978. So wow. this is my place to be. Um, I'm waiting for a couple of Ravenloft books to fall into my lap. There, towards the end of the line, there were the Monster Hunter compendiums. Mm-hmm. So there's three of those, and I don't have any of them. And like I said, I don't think they're super rare or super expensive. I just keep waiting. I know uh, Etten Games is going to show up and have them for me at some point. Yep. So it's the waiting game with that. And then I know you guys last time had talked a little bit about the Game Wizards, that new book that just came yeah. out fairly yes. recently. So that has me curious to get a copy of Dave Arnson's Adventures in Fantasy. Wow. So I'd like to that's, check that out. That's a good read. It's cool. a good read because there's so little artists and stuff on the you know out there. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a really good read, you know. Versus Gary, there's there's plenty of Gary stuff, but there's not a lot of Dave Arnes and stuff. Yeah. So I that's my them a couple of things that I like to track down if they fall into my hot little hands. So you, you want to hear a funny Dave Dave Arneson story? Heck yeah. So this is this is actually cool. My son Ben goes to a school in Florida and he goes to called Full Sail University. And it's uh basically it's a it's a it's a four year university, but it's it's got a totally different track system, but it's basically an entertainment university. So it's it's people who design. They get jobs at Blizzard, or you know other big gaming companies. A lot of Hollywood people, um, production people go through that university. Um, that kind of thing. So Ben's in like financial enter, uh, entertainment finance. So he's kind of like the money end up of, of running things and finance. That's kind of his angle is with it, um, and project management. But uh, they have a so. Dave Arneson has a building named after him down there and they actually have a, I, I'm, I have yet to go see it. So I'm going to go see it this next time we go down to go down to Orlando. Um, they have a whole display center with a bunch of his personal stuff from when he first basically 
you know, created D and D. Like, I would think his personal wood grain, I think, is down there. So I am really geeked to go see that. I mean, I had no idea it even existed. Well, ben had no idea it even yeah. was there. So yeah, I thought that was ties cool. to that part of the country. I always thought he was all, you know, yeah. Western Midwest. Yeah. Well, I think, like I said, it has it, he he was somehow connected to it. I, I don't know the whole story, but I'm going to find out. But I think it's really I think it's really mm-hmm. cool because Gaijax gets all the credit, right? Mm-hmm. Dave, a lot less. For sure. Yeah, I know that. You know. What little I knew of that whole situation was always very stilted towards the Gygaxes. That sure. Noah Arneson was a was a bum that never wanted to come to work and never did anything, and he's you know only part of the project name only. And uh, some of the stuff that I've heard from the Game Wizards book is kind of revealing that there's you know another side of the story on all that. So there is definitely another side of that story. Yeah, it's a, and the Game Wizards is a great book by the way. I'm about halfway through it, so. Yeah, I finished it up. It was really good, really good. Highly recommend it to you, anybody yeah. that's interested in the olden days. And yeah. it's straightforward. It's the facts as they happen. So that was Absolutely. really nice too. Yeah, John Peterson does a plenty of punches. He just does, does it, says it like it is. Edwin, you got anything you're looking for? No, I was able to uh, to hit somebody else's grail. Uh, speaking of uh, John Peterson, a friend of mine was looking for playing at the world because uh, I guess he'd gotten. Uh, the other Peterson books for, for Christmas. And he's like, yeah, if only I had playing at the world. So I sent him my copy with love and I was very happy to make somebody's collection complete. So I'm, I have, I have, uh, I have some karma now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it always gives me joy when I can send a book that I know I'm probably not going to return to, to somebody else that can use it. Cause otherwise I, I feel guilty when I see him sitting there on the shelf, you know? That's yeah. Matt's reading mine right now. Yeah. yeah and I enjoyed it. It was a good, it was a good book. I just, uh, yeah, I think unlikely I'd reread it anytime soon. And I figure, and the new one, the Game Wizards, I haven't gotten yet, but I'm, I'm thinking uh, next time I'm at a con, probably at North Texas, I, I'm, I'm hoping there'll be a copy uh, for sale available there. So hold out for that. Not off steal someone's. What about you? When it comes to physical objects, there's not a lot that I, I actually collect anymore. I mean, I, I kind of went through a phase in high school and college with comic books and, and star wars paraphernalia and stuff and, and i kind of grew out of that as i got married and had kids and had other uses for the money uh but there's one thing that i still collect and that's uh and i can't say too much now because i i potentially have a question coming up for eddie at the end of the show that involves this but uh the one thing i collect is castle ravenloft well <laughs> for those of you listening at home he's he's pulling the some of the transformer uh objects he has around like that's another big love of mine but uh at any rate um so for role playing i've tried to get every version of castle ravenloft that's ever appeared in print and while i was researching a question it came to my the forefront of my mind that um ravenloft wasn't originally published as ravenloft that uh laura and tracy hickman they're running a little game publishing uh kind of thing out of their own kitchen and they published the original version of what became Ravenloft under a different name. And so now I'm like, huh, I wonder if there's any of that out there. Don't you start searching, Eddie. That's cheating. <laughs> that was too big a hint. I, I got to Google, Google it now. So, uh, so I saw his Google fingers starting to so move. So I doubt <laughs> I could touch it even if I could find it available. But now I know that there's one version that I definitely don't have uh, that could complete that collection. Cool. All right, well, uh, we've got a huge uh, Letters from the Homeowners Association portion tonight. 
So let's get into that. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. Wonder who it's from. My opinion this letter writer is a total wacko. All right, guys, we've got uh, a couple different letters here. Let's start with uh, we got a letter from Andy Wordenda, and he writes, Hey, guys, just discovered your podcast today, and I'm on my third episode. I love your shows where you do a deep dive on an old D&D module. One episode, uh, episode five, the one where you talk about Against the Giants, one of the hosts mentions a podcast, but he says it's called The Gagman Podcast. I can't find this anywhere. It sounded really good, and I'd love to check it out. Am I spelling it wrong? Well, Andy, no. That host, who is this host right here, simply says things wrong all the time. <laughs> and uh, that podcast is actually called The Gag Men <laughs> RPG podcast, and uh, you can still find its episodes out there on the interwebs. Uh, it's uh, it's doesn't it seems like it's pod faded, but there's still I think I don't know I think they got up to like 20 to 50 episodes somewhere in that range, um, and it's still a great podcast for those of you that are just hearing about it right now. Uh, the premise is these these group of guys, and it kind of alternates who's involved. They uh, kind of pitch stories to one another to turn into RPG games. And then they kind of go through, well, this is what the plot would be, and these are the, the characters, and this is how it would you know, kind of unravel. And by the end of the episode, they've put together a role-playing game, uh, you know, like a, an adventure or whatever. And, of course, it's more comedy than anything, but uh, they're real fun guys to listen to. And then the, the main guy in it, Corbin, uh, you'll catch him on the Save for Half podcast. He's one of their uh, co-hosts now that they restarted that under that uh, title. So uh, if you like it, you want to jump over there and listen to him on that. Uh, so that's what that's about. Again, sorry about the, the misspeaking there, uh, the Gag Men RPG podcast. Any of you guys happen to catch any of that, that podcast? Or I did go back and listen to it, actually, yeah. The Gag Men, there's a few of them that, uh, again, it's, it's mostly for comedy's sake, but there's a few where they hit on an idea, and I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, so nice little treasure trove if you're desperate for something for your your home game that's coming up and you haven't prepared for it. Yeah, I might <laughs> uh, might have to uh, give that a listen the next day or two. See what pops out. The one about uh, I can't remember if it's the king's ass or the queen's ass, but th that one's a pretty good one. Uh, ass being a donkey, of course. <laughs> of course. So uh, then we got a, a letter from Jonathan. Uh, we got two of them here. I'll, I'll read one. And I'll go right into the other one. Uh, so Jonathan Kurtz, he's a longtime listener, big fan of the podcast, and uh, uh, nowadays I actually game with him. It got to the point where uh, I was like, we, we kept promising him we were going to play, uh, oh, what was it, uh, Gangbusters, and, and tell him you know what we thought of the new Gangbuster rules, uh, and we never did. And finally I'm like, hey, you know, if if you want to be part of a, a playtest of it, we'll, we'll run one just for you. And uh, then he ended up just becoming part of our home gaming group, but uh, he, he razzes me a little bit here. He says, I'm a fan of culture class. Uh, I love it when player characters from one genre are thrust into a setting they're not expecting. As in the DCC module, Not in Kansas Anymore, where characters from the 70s unexpectedly end up in a classic DCC setting. Or like in the Gamers, Humans, and Households miniseries, where classic D&D characters find themselves in modern day. If the podcast hosts were to create such clashes... Whom would they put into what systems? And then he, he later uh, writes to me and says, uh, oh, uh, I, I sent a somewhat tangently kind of related question to Eddie in his podcast, 
I guess I'm going to get caught. Busted. He did. Uh, hey, you're going to have to step it up here. They just sent me a box full of shirts and books and stuff for writing in. What are you going to give out? <laughs> so, so yeah. Nothing I, now, I, right? Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I'm a... We're getting busted. Repeat questions. <laughs> Disqualified. But yeah, he was he was telling me how uh, you, you guys sent him this big old care package that had everything in the kitchen sink in it. He's like, hey, man. Yeah, we hooked I've been listening up. to you for a long time. What, what's going on here? So uh, I, I don't know, Jonathan, man. I, I'll have something headed to California sometime soon. You might not like what you get. Keep in mind, I live on a farm. I got lots of roadkill around here. <laughs> a little, little roadkill or something, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I don't know, mashups, uh, culture clashes, time uh, time adverse uh, travels. What, what, what do you guys think? What would be cool? Well, I, I could speak to that because <clears throat> we've done it at Pace Setter. So um, about so, I want to say six, seven years ago now, we did uh, – we put out something for the North Texas RPG Con. Basically, it was a special uh, kind of one-off project called the Red Queen, where you start you your character start in a D, uh, AD&D adventure. And these are short. These are all digest adventures. They're short, probably anywhere between 12 and 15 encounters, roughly, kind of thing. And you start. Uh, it's got a central storyline of this. Um, basically, I hate to give it all away, but this android who comes from the future. And they need to grab people from different time periods to cure a disease in the future. So they, your PCs encounter them in, in an AD&D environment. And then it, when you finish that, it jumps to a, let's see, I'm going right sequence here. It jumps to a Boot Hill uh, adventure. And then it jumps to a Top Secret, the first edition uh, adventure. And it jumps to a Gamma World adventure. Uh, so we we did that, like I said, about seven years ago, where it's a continuing storyline using those four different rule systems, and uh, it's kind of a mashup, um, I guess, of sorts. But uh, you kind of play through the whole thing like that, or you can play them individually if you want. It was it was really successful. We had uh, brought them to Texas. We sold them in like one day. They were gone. Um, we reprinted it as a, a larger book, but we only did like one printing of that too. So we're we're bringing that actually back in another. It's probably about a year away, but uh, I really enjoyed it uh, creatively, cre- creatively wise, because uh, it just gives you a lot of license to do a lot of different things, which is it's just a lot of fun. And it keeps the players on their toes, right? Nothing's going to get old or stale. It's going to keep it fresh, boom, 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 right through it by, by jumping through. So I, th- I, th- I like the idea of doing mashups. I don't think I want to do them all the time, but it's kind of a, a one-off thing. It's like, hey, next three or four game sessions, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I, I enjoy it personally. So you guys. Yeah, it's a tough one because I definitely go back and forth on that. I played, you know, played a lot of fun Call of Cthulhu games where the investigators from whatever the 20s or modern day or whatever it is end up in, you know, the dreamlands or or go space traveling to some other world. So there's a lot of that. And it somehow feels very different because it is somehow because it's all within the genre. It I mean, it's it's a sort of a mashup, right? You're still taking a 1920s yep. character and seeing how they react in kind of a fantasy world or in some alien something-something world. But it's somehow, it's interesting how different to me that feels than, oh, I don't know, some some mountain full of a crashed spaceship <laughs> with robots that your D&D adventurers find or something. Or, or you know, the various scenarios where you have a, a modern day, you know, you're the player and you show up in D&D land or something. And I'm not sure why. That's a, 
it's a weird it's the same idea it's still it's still that contrast of, of cultures which i do enjoy but and i and i definitely enjoy no maybe i don't maybe that's the problem i think i i think i don't particularly in, in a long running game that's different okay so for a for a one shot or i think though like you're talking about a, a, a little palate cleanser even within a campaign having bringing in those whatever it is to sort of mix up the world can be a lot of fun but i think for in general for like a long campaign where i'm thinking about a a universe or a world that can be sort of explorable and you can learn about it once i start bringing in the kitchen sink and then the robot and then the roman gladiators i'm suddenly lost like i'm like well now anything you know there's no limits now and i like limits i like to push my creativity by having these constraints as opposed to that sort of empty palette empty uh, canvas type of creativity so that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting to think about. I, no, I think you hit the nail on the head with that, though, Edwin, because time travel games always suffer from from that. You know, it's really hard to run a time travel game in any sort of campaign style, long term, uh, long term campaign. It just they, they just they run out of steam real fast because you are all over the place. And I, I think uh, mm. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. A lot of people really have a hard time with that. It's not. It's not really a mashup, I guess, a time travel game, but it it kind of is, right? So it's uh, right. That's that's the same thing like the Call of Cthulhu, right? Yeah. It's not a mashup, but it feels. Yeah. It's the same idea that you're. Yeah. You're taking yeah. your your people from here and putting them there. Could it be like the Connecticut and uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court? Right? That was, was going to be my thing. Like, there's fun stuff to be had there. I, I, yeah. I think if if yeah. I were to do something, I would try to maybe do a reversal of that. And I know that that's not necessarily new territory. I think. Uh, you know, Temple of the Frog sort of touches on that kind of idea, but but have it be where it's the bad guy that's been transported from the future into your time, and he's got all the techno stuff and all the advantages, and then, you know, how do you, you know, rally against something like that? But yeah. you, you guys are right, and I think it goes back to some of what we talked about on the last episode as far as trope goes. Once you throw in that time travel component, once anything becomes possible, now everything starts to lose sensibility and starts to lose form and, and direction and, and the world becomes a much looser defined place. Uh, and I think it, it becomes hard to, to march forward with that as a campaign. Agreed. Eddie, your thoughts? How's that for a serious <laughs> answer to a, a toss-off yeah. question? <laughs> well, I've yeah, got to answer this yeah, yeah. Twice. What did you say on your program with this? <laughs> So you'll have to wait for that one. But I went a slightly different direction for this one because he also said, whom would you move around? So being the Ravenloft fanboy that I am, wouldn't you like to see Strahd in space? Uh, don't say that. Ah, we had a starship. <laughs> so my, uh, <laughs> my, my third, uh, and it's just notes, but uh, my, my third Mutant Crawl Classics uh, offering was going to be basically a vampire on a satellite. Like and you get transported yeah. on the satellite nice. and oh man, or disco straw. <laughs> There's a lot of cool things that you could do with that character, and I kind of he's almost like the Doctor Doom analog for mm -hmm. me, where you can kind of plug him in anywhere and be a smart challenge for players. So <laughs> cool. Very cool. All right, I got another letter here. Lawrence Bluff writes, "Wow, that show was fun." When it comes to safety tools, I think Edward was right. So I don't know who Edward is, but he gave some advice on it. 
and it was the right <laughs> no i'm pretty sure he means edwin i don't either uh, but enough said on that well thank you thank you for you know giving us our pride here those that didn't agree so all right uh i thought it was interesting that everybody was so quick to kick psionics out onto the street there is certainly a long history of people hating D&D psionics is there a system that does the whole mental powers thing well? How about a sword and sorcery system that has it in that has it in a way that jives? Looking forward to the shows. These guest hosts and your new ones have been a joy to get to learn about. All right, Lawrence. Well, what do you guys think? Mental powers. What's the best system? Well, thanks, Lawrence. No, there isn't. There isn't a swords and sorcery <laughs> game that does it well. And the reason it doesn't do it well is because psionics doesn't belong in Swords and Sorcery. <laughs> um, it works in something like Gamma World, right? It, uh, we were just talking about mashups, right? So here you're, you're putting a one-off thing. might be cool where the, you know, an A&DD party runs up against something that's, you know, a psionic-based adventure. They run into Mind Flayers or something, right? I mean, that's cool. It's cool as hell. But when it's there all the time, I think, it just takes away from the evocative nature of whatever game you're running when you've got something that's in total conflict. So for me, I'm sure there's a game that probably does it well. I'm, I, was, I was kind of joking at that. But for me, there's no Swords and Sorcery game that could ever do it well because in my mind, it doesn't belong in a Swords and Sorcery game. It's just, it just not not as a, like when we were especially talking about how Dark Sun ran it. Um, and you talk about being a... a prescient with dark sun right because wizards of the coast basically just threw that thing to the curb after right after literally the week after we <laughs> talked about it um but uh so i i don't know i can't think of a game that has ever done psionics well is in swords and sorcery but not very many of them actually even try so i mean most notably D didn't do it very well yeah especially first edition I, I, second edition i never played around with no. enough to give uh, yeah i mean i'll i'll, I'll limit my my frame of reference to first edition you notice it never even showed up in in bx or back me or uh black box dnd so how in your mind is psionics different in a or how should psionics be different in a sort of mechanical way from spell casting or should you just either have one system or the other in any given game well i i think that's what you probably should do is one or the other. And for me, again, this is, this is my uh, head that's predetermined that psionics is a science fiction-y thing where magic is a fantasy thing. So when we, again, like crossing them over in a, a one-off or a certain situation, like for instance, like mind flares and D and D that's, that's okay. I'm cool with that. But, but introducing it to the whole game as a system to me that it doesn't work for me again that's just my personality and how i look at the game it could work well for plenty of other people but for me i pick i i have a hard time separating psionics from science fiction you know it's the same be the same way if i put a bunch of magic into a a, a science fiction thing it gets kind of you know where you're going with that you know post-apocalypse stuff is is the catch-all that's where, where i think you can do both of them together a little bit but uh, it's not really but that's really not fantasy again. You know, we're getting out of the fantasy realm. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I'm thinking if I had to put psionics, if I had to put psionic creatures into a 5e game, right? So I'm doing a translation yep. or you know somebody writes something, I would I would absolutely just make it innate spellcasting, and I would just use the the existing magic system rules. I'd write some custom spells if I had to. I would cheat, you know, I'd give them more spell points or, you know, spell slots than they're supposed to have, whatever. I would do whatever I had to do, but I would probably do it within the spell casting framework because that exists and that does exactly what I need it to do, I think. I mean, it's hard for me to think of a psionic, I mean, I mean there's sort right of, there I guess you. the only thing I can kind of think of is the, is the fatigue thing. And so I might say that if we have this psionic spellcaster, maybe there's a chance or maybe every so many spell slots they, they use up, they get a, a level of exhaustion or something. You know, like, like maybe I have to do just a little bit of pushing the rules. But yeah, I, that's, that's the part that's always bothered me about psionics. It's not the psionics per se. It's why have both? Like if you have a system for doing weird shit with your brain, you have, that's, that's great. And you should be able to do, I mean, anything you can do a fireball and a teleport and an ESP with, like, as far as I'm concerned, you're done. Like, you figured it out. So to play devil's advocate, so I, I can see it in this sense. Like, it's, it's almost the same reason that I feel like clerical spells are are, are sort of weird in D&D because they are spells, but yet they're not supposed to really represent magic. They're supposed to represent these, you know, divine interventions and it, it just doesn't feel like it should. And in the same sense, I think most people that want to bring psionics into a, a fantasy setting are kind of leaning maybe more into like the, the Eastern mentality of, of psionics and the, and the idea of like, you know, a you know, Buddhist monk who's, you know, developed powers with their mind through, you know, intense meditation and devotion and all this. Um, and so I'm thinking, you know, from that perspective, you don't want it to be magic because that's not its origin. And if it is magic and if it's treated like magic and if magic interacts with it just like other magic, uh, then it, it kind of betrays the, the origin that that player maybe wants it to represent or the DM might want it to represent. I like that. So if I have my anti-magic shell up, you should be able to penetrate that area with your, your uh, yeah, I'll buy that, I'll buy that a tonfold. Um, and actually, as you were saying that, I was thinking, well, you know, even 5e, you're saying cleric's not the same as, you know, cleric arcane magic and, and divine magic, but, you know, 5e's actually gone, you know, they have four, five, yeah, it depends how you think, but they've got a whole mess of magic <laughs> systems that all are different. Four is Yeah. Right? And then they have subtle different, different rules from each other. You know, the cleric can do one thing and the wizard can do something else and the sorcerer's got something else going on. And, and I guess that's kind of cool. I mean, I think that's part of the attraction of those different classes in 5e. So I'm with you on that. And so maybe if one of them is pushing it a little harder uh, to mentalism, mental magic, mental something. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sold. I'm sold. <laughs> I'm not. Um, I... <laughs> <laughs> Good. I, although I, I see your point, but I, I kind of agree with, with Ed, the way Edwin was first talking about it, about if you have a magic system that's kind of mental based anyway, why not just go with that? Why introduce something that's so um, 
so out of the box unless it's i mean look you have fun how you have fun i don't i don't care but for me like i said it's i'm, I'm gonna i'm just gonna go off my personal thing it's psionics science fiction magic high fantasy low fantasy whatever you want to call it um to me that it just works and if you want to mish a little bit you can, certainly can mess with it um because there is like edwin said i mean there's there's an esp spell in in D D, right so you've, you've got magical powers that mimic mental powers already clear audience clairvoyance i mean there's and i'm only scraping probably the bottom of the barrel how some of that stuff matches up but for me that's how i would just i would just stick go with what got you there why why do the rest of this stuff but look i can i can see it working i do i mean it, it could add some some cool stuff but but for me i just I, I like keeping the pcs out of it like a monster having a psionic ability is i'm okay with that but when you introduce it with the pcs running it now or npcs it just it gets weird to me but uh and again it's not the game i'm kind of looking at i guess but but well, no that said Leah, look at 5e there is a lot of variety in 5e and and yeah, they my, do my pretty well. Trying to think how to do the, the Buddhist monk in 5e who's sort of yeah. got their magical yeah. powers that maybe isn't magic or maybe isn't effective. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Yeah. How I write that. Yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, it's it. it yeah, that comes back to how you want. It's the world an interesting to, road to walk to with the arc. Yeah, you know, like like you said, arcane and divine magic. I mean, when we did the BXRPG, we took a couple of pages right in the rule book to to really kind of define those two and how they're different and how they're alike and and that kind of thing to just try and um codify how it works and why it doesn't work and we have ulterior reasons for doing that but um it, it's good to have that kind of separation too i think so eddie you got any words on this uh yeah towards the end of second edition i actually played a psionicist wow. So maybe I'm that one guy that did. But like I said, that was towards the end of the line where we had done everything. <laughs> it's like there's nothing left to do but try out – what was it, the Book of Humanoids? Sure. Where it's like I'll be a half-giant psionicist <laughs> or you know, whatever. I'll be a mongrelman. All the crazy combinations that you could come up with. So uh, the flavoring, yeah, it is like you're guy, the guy that stepped out of the time warp or something. It's like why are you here? And magic is so baked into it like you brought up. It's like – the villain has an anti-magic shell up. So what? I blast right through it because they're not. It wasn't set up for a psionicist either. That was not cooked into it either. So just having that third form of magic or whatever you want to call it, yeah, you could just smoke so many things. It now becomes rock, paper, scissors, um, Spock. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then for uh, first edition, when you do the character creation and roll up to see if you had the like latent psychic abilities. I was playing one of those with Doug at one of the game days and I just rolled up the most fantastic character ever. And I think he could uh, do 200 pounds uh, telekinesis, moving stuff around. I was like, why would I use any other skill ever? <laughs> yep, exactly. So, I am playing a, uh, I guess, a psionic in uh, one of the Call of Cthulhu games, in a Pulp Cthulhu game. He's got a psionic talent, telekinesis, and something else. And it has been a hoot, definitely. Um, but I won't say it's a great, it, like, I don't think they did a great, you know, it's fine for, for what it is, but it's it, it does not satisfy, uh, I think, uh, Lawrence thing of saying is it a, a system that does mental powers well or, Certainly a lot of swords and sorcery systems. Yeah, that's, so. that's the thing. I mean, I, my, my favorite system that has the whole mentalist powers is probably Hollow Earth Expedition, 
and it does it pretty well. It rolls pretty quick and, and gives the players a lot of options with what they can do. But um, I can't think of the swords and sorcery one. Um, I, I can't either. I mean, you know, superhero games, some of them do it really, really well. I was really ask well, you about that, Bill, because right? uh, Heroes had the, was it Mental Masters or something like that? As a, It's been yeah. a long time since I've been into that. Uh, did that handle mental powers pretty well? Did it, or did it just... It did, but it, it was it, so the hero games products. It, they all use the hero system, so it doesn't matter. So the same system that was in there was in basically champions. So yeah, it, it works smooth, and I mean their system is pretty clean. I mean, I, I, to me, champions is the the pinnacle of superhero games, and I'm getting to fights with all kinds of people about which one's best. But but I think some superhero games actually do it really well. Um, bills, villains and vigilantes, you know, it's pretty clean. Um, but again, to me, it fits that genre, right? To me, psionic powers fits that genre, so you can you can make it work really well. Versus, I think it's really hard to make it work in a swords and sorcery game because you have magic out there already. So now you're just kind of creating something that is just so against the grain. It it just it, may, it to me it takes you out of the the evocativeness out of the game a little bit. It just takes you to a different place. All right, we got a final uh, message here from the Lone DM. Uh, he or she writes, Hey there, architects of the antiquated. I hope I'm not making a nuisance of myself writing in so often, but when you talked about random dungeon designs, it got me thinking about a question for your team. When thinking about classic dungeons, people typically, excuse me, typically think of one monsters, two traps, three secret passages, four treasures, and five riddles. Are there any other common conventions of dungeoneering you can think of? Also, how important are these elements in your own design of dungeons, and how would you rank their presence within a well-designed dungeon? I do hope you followed through on the episode over random generators. I could sure use some new resources there. <laughs> All right. One of the things that I think we're going to get to in the uh, in the main topic, so to speak, if we ever get to it, which you know, maybe we won't, that's all good, um, but is uh, social encounters. Yes. And uh, specifically factional stuff in, in that case. Mm -hmm. But I think I, I would say that that is a sixth thing that I try to think about in a, even in a dungeon. Like I don't, I don't like to limit them to towns. And even if it's a social encounter with a, uh, uh, I don't know, magic mouth or something, but it, yeah, some 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 chance for conversation, learning about the world, and uh, making friends and making enemies. I definitely I like to see that in a dungeon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I'll plug our endless encounters again, but we have several charts in there for what we call monster reaction, just generically speaking. But you know, the whole concept of that is that. Is you, as as adventurers, you're not walking into something frozen in time. A dungeon is a an ecological system where things are going on. Monsters are doing things. They all have motivations. So I think having random tables to determine maybe what a monster may or may not be doing is is it's it's important because they're going to be doing things that don't necessarily have anything to do with the PCs. Um, and when the PCs walk into those encounters, right, you get opportunities for um, talking to them, getting tricked, um, buying into what they're doing temporarily, betrayal. There's all kinds of fun aspects to that that you can throw in um, with random tables and, and yeah, from a lot of different products that have been around. So 
I I do think that is important. To, like Edwin was saying, you don't just want to walk in and fight everything. You want to have uh, you want to have encounters that just trip people up on both uh, both ends of that spectrum. I think another thing that is uh, that I often think about when I think about specifically about classic dungeons and dungeon exploration and dungeon crawls, which I bet your tables also do well, is history. What is this? Yep. What you know? Sort of just learning about the dungeon itself. What is its history? How? Why was it created? What's happened to it since then? And I think that's a a whole other piece of the dungeon design, and putting in the the bits of history that allow the characters and the players really to to learn about that and sort of get to know your world through the dungeon. For sure. Why is it there? Yeah. Why is it there? Who put it there? Does it have anything to do with what's going on now? Yeah, there's there's all kinds of fun elements you can play with there. I agree. Yeah, so I guess getting into that, because it's really sort of, the, I think this list here is a pretty solid list, I would say, of sort of the physical mm-hmm. physical things of the dungeon. And then the other two things we're adding here, maybe there's some others, uh, are, are more of the the context of the dungeon or the, well, I guess the social encounter is still pretty concrete. Like there's a person in there you're going to talk to or whatever, a monster or something. Yep. So, curses. I guess that's part of traps, maybe. But, yeah, but sort of, I guess maybe the other another piece is sort of environment, um, which could include uh, magical energies that are floating around. It could include smells and uh, flavors oh, yeah. and all that. But you know, okay, just kind natural. of a like yeah, in this natural. area. Yeah. Is it hot? Is it cold? Natural is stuff. It... Yep. 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 Does your does your magic not work very well over here? Is this an area of unholy energy where you can't turn on dead? Like that's sort of just all the all the all the senses, magical and supernatural and natural. I think mm-hmm. that's a cool part of the dungeon. Eddie, anything you would add to his list here or her list? Hope you're muted, bud. Thanks. He's inside a silent spell. <laughs> it's and, metal uh, power. Somebody's using their metal spell power. And think, think through really hard. You break through the mute, maybe. That's what happens when you press the little button on the headset <laughs> yeah. instead. But I was gonna say the couple of things that I would uh, bring up is uh, first off when they talked about secret passages. Um, I have a dungeon that's in X-Crawl. I don't know how familiar you guys are with that one. Kind of like uh, American Gladiators meets D&D. So it's in the modern time. There's actually a dungeon judge that's setting this dungeon up for your team to go into to try and make it entertaining, not necessarily to kill you, but to challenge you. So in this, the one that I've got is uh, it's very, you can open door A or you can open door B. And it forces that choice on you every time you go along. But what you don't see is that there's always a third choice, which is to search for the secret door. And you can secret passage your way through the whole thing. (laughs) And you do that as a tournament. So if anybody figures that out, boom, that's it. Mm -hmm. They pretty much walk to the end and win. (laughs) So that's just one way that you can kind of turn that on its head. And then I was going to say for traps in general, I know that we have a subcategory of traps that you guys might put into adventures, which is the monkey trap. <laughs> I can hear Matt saying that right now. You guys now. use that term? Yeah. So that's the most obvious trap, which is for the greediest of players. So oh, I always like to try and put one of those in. I've been uh, harking back to this uh, Stonehill game that I've been playing. Uh, one of the things I think that, and I've talked to other people about this, for, for classic uh, D&D, one of the things that some people enjoy and some people think makes a game really bogged down is all the sort of player caution, like, I search for traps. I use my pole. <laughs> and, blah, 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 blah. and so he has uh, he set up this rule, which I really like. Is if you if you encounter a trap, what he does is he first has some random stuff to see if the trap gets triggered, 
right? So there's a chance that you could walk across the trap and never see it because it's old and rusty. And then if it does get triggered, he figures out how many people would have already walked past the trap before it gets triggered. And then he has us roll our detect traps rolls. And if somebody found it before, you know, in the front of the line, before the trigger person got to it, they found it. And so it just completely removed the conversation that we that I remember having all the time. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. <laughs> standard precaution. We will enter every room backwards idiots. with the pull extended. <laughs> yeah, the whole, yeah. Exactly. Yep. The only time it's not like if we're running away from something, then you're not looking for traps, right? You're just, you just find them. But if you're sort of in dungeon exploration, and I thought, what an elegant system. It's just so clean and speeds up play so much. And it just changes. Like we, uh, another game I'm in, we, we sort of made a rule of um, basically the characters aren't idiots. You know, these are high level adventurers and they're just not idiots. And, and so if you sort of, you know, instead of, instead of it's sort of the opposite of the DM gotcha thing, it's the, it's the player. No, I'm, my, my character is not an idiot. Like if, if my character knew there was a pit there, they would not have stepped into it. Great. Awesome. Let's keep going. And like just those, these things, I just sort of thinking about how sensibilities have changed. And, um, so this this new way of this new to me take on traps, I really would enjoy. I know he asked about like what we think's from. most important in that, or how we we would rank them, or what have you. But um, I kind of like a lot of what you guys were saying. To me, oh. it's it's all about the like the ecology and the in the history of the dungeon. Like I, I don't know, maybe nobody else enjoys that. But as we talk about uh, the, the ruined moat house tonight, uh, when we get into the tomb of horrors. I think one of the strongest things I have memory-wise about that is just the essence of there was history here. Something happened to this place, and, and there's a sort of state that it was left mm. in. And, and all that, to me, remains a lot more tangible years after I've played it than, you know, oh, I remember the three ghouls that rushed you in these, you know, uh, burrows or whatever. Um so, you know, it's not on the list, but I think that that history, that, that ecology of it, um, this, you know, social interactions of, of what's there and why it's there and what it's doing, um, I almost would move all that to the, the front of the line as far as most important for the dungeon. And then these other things, I think, are nice to have because it's, it's what we play for, right? We love the traps, we love the monsters and stuff, but I kind of think they all are second fiddle to that, that, that thing that, that gives the dungeon its its character and its you know uh uniqueness compared to other dungeons yeah that's a good way of putting it because i feel like all five of these things have an important part in most dungeons and you know i like to see in a given adventure i like to see a couple interesting monsters but i'm happy if i don't mind if most of the monsters are just kind of you know I, I can have a lot of fun just running into orcs or goblins or whatever and you know that's that's all cool and similarly with traps, you know, pit traps are fine. And, you know, it's nice to have something creative occasionally. Um, and your secret passage thing, Eddie, that sounds like 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 having a an entire secret dungeon. That seems really cool. I like that idea of just like we've got mm -hmm. two dungeons here and one of them you can see and one you can't. That's a fun idea. Um, and, you know, we were just I was just talking with the, the frogs today about a, a little adventure, uh, basically. And so I feel like, you know, you can certainly have an adventure a good adventure where any one of the five of these comes to the forefront you know this is really a monster adventure this is really a trap adventure this is really whatever whatever but 
it, I feel like it's about the the mixture of them and and not getting bored of any one of them. And then, as you were saying, Lou, I think having that what what differentiates what really differentiates these ventures is not uh, that this one has a ten by twenty room and that one has a twenty by twenty room. It, it's the sense of of the story behind the adventure and the the personality of both the dungeon and the personality of the inhabitants of the dungeon. That's really what makes stuff sing. I mean, yeah, for the most part. I will. In a way, it's like asking the chef which one of the ingredients is the most important, don't yeah. you think? Good analogy. I yeah. do. I do. And and similarly, right? Yeah, like uh, yeah, you want you want you want them in balance and different dishes and different ones standing out. And mm -hmm. and what's really exciting is that that unique combination and why it's that you know actually maybe for you, Lou. What's really most important is learning that this was somebody's grandmother's recipe that they brought over from Czechoslovakia, you know, 80 years ago. And that's the part of the meal you remember. You don't know if it was necessarily onions or leeks, but <laughs> but that story of, you know, where the recipe came from. <laughs> All this dungeon talk, I, I think there's only one place we can go, folks. That's uh, yeah, we gotta go the there. first of the biggest uh, <laughs> elemental evil. This old dungeon. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. All right, tonight on the This Old Dungeon portion, there it is, the, the Goodman Games version, the two-volume set, the, the you could break your back if you carry this in your backpack version, and, and there's the original that Bill has, a nice, uh, perfect bound, uh, what is that, like 120 pager there? 128, uh, you're probably not going to be able to see this. Oh, it's signed, who is that, let's see. It's Frank. Oh. <laughs> it's, nice. it's Frank. Nice. All right, Temple of Elemental Evil. Folks, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you know it, you've played it, or at least played part of it, or you've just barely heard of it and have a lot of curiosity about it. Uh, let's let's go with Eddie first. Eddie, you suggested this. What's your connection to this? What, what do you, you know, why this? Why did you want to bring this on the program? Yeah, Eddie, why'd you want to bring this on the program? <laughs> well, that's the, the, this is the big granddaddy of them all, right? If you're going to do one episode, isn't this the one to do? So no. I was I was glad that that wasn't taken yet, but my connection to it is this is the first uh, module adventure I'd ever run. Everything else before that was homebrew, so this was my first time learning how to run a dungeon and put somebody else's ideas into motion. And it's also the thing that I will run the most. I've run it so many times, just being the T1 portion, of course, because that's such a good village to just plop down anywhere and do whatever you want you may never get to the moat house but you've already got that ready-made base of operations so that's why i love it so much all right and, and i don't know our ages here but i'm going to guess that uh bill i'm going to guess you're the the elder of the three of us or the four you're being of us, way too polite <laughs> yeah old, i'm old as dirt uh I, I know i'm i'm just under under 50 uh, uh you guys i imagine are Somewhere in there, so yeah, yeah uh, I'm 57, so I have no problem telling saying that. <laughs> so uh, when I came across Village, uh, the Village Hamlet, um, it, it had been out for a while, 
but it was still one of the first things that I came across as far as adventures go. And, and kind of like you, Eddie, it was one of the first ones I can remember both playing in and running uh, that was pre-made. You know, before that, I it's like, why would I want somebody else's adventure? You know, I was a kid, and I had the monster manual. That's all you needed to run a campaign. <laughs> you know, turn to letter B. What do we got under letter B? Okay, well, this is what we're fighting tonight, you know. I I honestly, I my, my experience, as, as I talked to people that were there when it first launched, my experience is a lot like theirs in that I had that Village Hamlet, the T1, um, very early on. And I spent a lot of time in my little Midwestern shops, uh, you know, little hobby stores and bookstores, hoping to find T2 or T3 or whatever the other modules were going to be, you know, that it promised in that first one and never found them. And, and was like, well, what's the deal here? And then later figured out that, oh, wait, no, they reprinted everything many years later as one solid book, having never printed, you know, the, the sequels to it. So I imagine that probably to some degree links up with, Maybe what your experience was, Bill, as far as running across these. I don't yeah, know. yeah. So, so I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you right now, I'm gonna be devil's advocate to everything Eddie says. So, um, but yeah, my my history with 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 this product was was Village Hamlet. Um, <laughs> I was they released it at Michigan in 1979 because TSI was always back then, especially they used to always release their products at at either Gen Con, Origins, Michigan, or WinterCon. That's when they did all their big releases. So they were really big on releasing products at conventions. So Village Hamlet was released in Michigan in 1979. I was there running the convention. That module came out, and I ran over there. I bought it. Um, you know, I'm a 14-year-old kid at the time. I thought it was one of the best things I'd ever read. I still consider Village Hamlet one of the top five TSR modules ever produced. I, I've... I will say that to the grab there. And there are some great modules. There's some I probably, there probably are, are better modules, okay? But as far as like design, art, even maybe storyline, that kind of thing. But to me, Village of Hamlet has that place that, um, and I've been playing D&D &D for about two years before it came out, I mean, two and a half years. So we we had owned, I had owned some other TSR modules, but the Village of Hamlet just was, was that, that was it. That was the it factor. And then, you know, they leave it off with, hey, you're going to be able to, all right, coming out, you know, coming out soon, we've got T2, the Temple of Elemental Evil, and you're just, your mind is racing, right? It's like, oh my God, this is going to be awesome. You know, you just, you think where the, you know, where this is going and, and based on, on, you've got this evil cleric who's a disciple of Loth and you're just like, oh my God, this is just going to be so freaking awesome. Well, six years later, they finally put out Temple of Elemental Evil, at which point everyone who was probably anything like me had decided either gave up on it, had probably run Village of Hamlet three or four times in that time period, and had designed their own Temple of probably Elemental Evil. Probably written their own version of yeah. Elemental yeah. Evil by then. Yep. Exactly. Their characters needed to get there. <laughs> yeah, you just needed to do it. And, uh, you know, so out comes Temple of Elemental Evil. I pick up Temple of I, – I pick it up, obviously. I was a big collector back in the day, and I still am, but – I, I bought everything TSR. I love TSR modules. So that, that, that said, I, I I love my homebrew stuff. I love TSR modules. I just have always – it is a thing in my heart for them. But uh, so outcomes T1 through 4, and I, I, I can't tell you how disappointed I was when I finally got that book. So it, it was – It's I think to me it's part of a victim of my expectations, right? I've been waiting for this book for six years. 
and I get this thing, and and I I'm gonna let everyone else talk before I get way off because I can talk about this forever. <laughs> but you know, just just looking at this book, I mean, if you if you do get the original copy, and obviously we can't show people, this it's an ugly book. It's got a beautiful cover by Parkinson, right? You've got this absolutely gorgeous cover. And I'm pretty sure they didn't tell him anything about what this was actually about because the temple on the cover doesn't even resemble anything described, um, which leads me into another part. There's I, I actually counted today. There's only, I believe, 12 illustrations in the entire book. This is a 128-page book. And half those illustrations, I swear to God, they pulled from something else or it was just TSR stock art they had laying around. It really is... It's it's not a good book to look at. It's got some three column format, which is bizarre. That, that no, I can't think of too many TSR modules that have a three column format. It makes it really hard to read, and it makes the thing look just like gray, 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 gray every page. I mean, it's it. I know it doesn't have anything to do with you know a great adventure it might be, and it to me I'm a, a love hate with it. I I do love I do enjoy some of it. It's just, to me, it was never the sequel to T1. It never will be. It just doesn't work. It almost looks like they just kind of shoehorned it in. Um, uh, Lareth the Beautiful, who everybody loves to hate, he's <laughs> he's just mentioned in one sentence in, in the beginning of it, almost as an afterthought of, oh, shit, yeah, we had him in the first one. We better say something about him in this. And that was it. Um, but so for me, that's that's my connection with, with T1 through 4. We can get into the nuts and bolts of it later, but for me, it was a uh, it was a victim of my expectations, and I think a lot of people feel the same way. I've t I've talked to a lot of people who feel the exact same way. Just you know, they were so excited with T1. T1 is still I, I I would pick it up if somebody said let's play D and D today, start a new campaign, and if I had five minutes, I'd grab my T1 and I would just start running with that. It's it, it's that good. It's like um, the aircraft carrier of D and D because you can launch from there anywhere. anything you want. Yeah. yeah anywhere right so you know to me and then then out comes t1 through four and i'm just that fell flat to me it felt the complete project fell flat to me edwin you got any experiences as far as this module goes so i i own one module from my childhood and it is a, a very beat up copy of t1 uh, with my my childhood scrawl, so I think this must be uh, 1981. So I think they must have come out with the the sort of a commercial, the non-convention version, right? A couple years later. No, so um, they. And I suspect. Yeah, in '79 they they were still doing mono print, mon the mono color covers. So all, yeah, all that is is a, basically the second. It's the third. It's the color think, cover. Where they did the color cover, yeah, it's Jeff D. Jeff D. Art in the front. Yep. Yeah, so yeah, that, 1981 like, copyright. And, the the interior is identical. Yeah, the interior is identical. Yeah, the interior is the same, yeah. It's got my, well, except this one has my, my uh, tenure, my young, I was pretty young, uh, my, my childhood scribbles with uh, uh, creative spelling, shall we say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's what makes it awesome. Various though. maps and, yeah, no, and the, the rusty awesome. staples and, um, you know, the, all that kind of stuff. I, I, I don't, I think as a kid, you know, I had it, I loved it and I, I didn't run it as a kid, but I definitely ran it when I got back into D and D and I was, um, you know, coming up with stuff to run at conventions, uh, that was sort of old school, 
I would I lean heavily on this and I, I think it found its way into several convention games because it was just a really nice, you know, the the old school players recognized it immediately. You know, you just put the map down of, of here's a village, I'm like, oh, okay. Um, Iconic. And then yeah. but you know, then the rest yeah, it's nice nice uh this is the kind of game we're playing. And then the rest of the adventure would be, you know, written for the convention. So it was a you know, it was something new, but it was centered on something old. Um, and then uh, the uh, I mean, it is funny, yeah. First of two modules, right, right in uh, <laughs> yep. big letters there. First of two modules. <laughs> um, I don't I don't have the same memory of waiting for for T two specifically. I think I lost my D and D group. I moved uh, pretty shortly after I got this, and I didn't have a, a regular group again for a long time. So I was sort of out of it. Um, so I don't have that part of it. And then. I I must have not read well uh, Elemental Evil because I, you know, reading it thoroughly before this, uh, a lot of it seemed new to me. So I think either I've just had completely spaced it or I just hadn't read much of it before. Um, so that was a that was fun to actually hit it fairly fresh. I had that kind and, of same uh, experience uh, as a kid. You know, reading the the full you know campaign version, uh, I just I must have hit fatigue on it, and it just kind of skimmed it. And and my impressions then versus my impressions reading it, you know, here for this podcast, uh, very different. I don't know how you couldn't yeah, get. Fatigued. I won't, I won't so. say that it's aged uh, particularly yeah. well. Sorry, what? <laughs> I don't know how you couldn't get fatigued trying to read this thing <laughs> yeah. right now, right? I mean, it, yeah. I, and I'm sure when I bought it, I probably read it cover to cover just because that's how I was, but I couldn't even imagine doing that right now. <laughs> I, I don't even like skimming through it. Um, it's just such a tough book to, to go through. Um, and and a, one caveat here, Frank Mentor is a good friend of mine. So when I knock this as a way, I, I don't want to, not, I'm not really want to say I'm knocking it. It's, it's not my jive. That's not a, that's not a knock on Frank. Frank's done stellar, amazing work. And there are a lot of people who love this module, right? I mean, it, it was Dungeon Magazine rated it the number four module in their top 50 of all time, I think it was. Um, I did a little bit of research on this before we dropped in here today. Um, to me, it, it again, my ranking, it wouldn't even be in the top 50 at all. But uh, so a lot of people do love this project, product. I mean, it, and I see why. Well, when I... I do. I, I there's elements to this adventure that are that are actually really really cool. They just don't go well. They just don't have anything to do with what I think the expectations were from Village of Hamlet. Well, there's a lot of cool stuff here just as an adventure, but for me, what I really enjoyed was the insight into like the flashback into this is how people gamed and this is one way that people wrote adventure. Like it's such a it, it a little time capsule in so many ways. That, oh, it absolutely, absolutely uh, yes. which I never yeah. picked up on before. You know? Yeah, you you can absolutely yeah. see that. Yeah, I yeah, agree. Just, that part was was so much fun. I mean, it felt weird. I was like, this is a weird <laughs> thing to do, but it felt a little voyeuristic and a little like I don't know, like you're sort of putting your your home game on parade here, but and and also sort of like, well, you guys, you know, this is how we played it. I was like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, it's history. It's it's important. It's interesting. But you know, it's gonna hit my table now. Um, I, I don't know. I really that just that was really fun. 
and there's a lot of other little little bits of uh, well there's some there's some really fun things that i think are interesting in hindsight yeah, there's some interesting things to pick out. So when you read the, uh, you get into it and you're reading about um, how the the backstory, how the temple was created, right? It's it's I, I've always just called her Zagutmoy. That's my pronunciation. I'm sure it's bad, but that's just how I pronounce it. I mean, this is her temple. She designed it, and she, and you know the Eos kind of worked his way in, but she designed this temple of elemental evil because she thought, you know, she's the goddess of what slimes, oozes, all that kind of stuff, right? fungus that's that's her thing that she's the goddess of all that but she decided she didn't she didn't think anyone would like that <laughs> so she would create a temple based on the four elements this just makes absolutely no sense to me at all she's the <laughs> goddess of slimes and oozes but she's like well you know people really don't like that so let me create this whole other <laughs> temple over here based on nothing there's nothing like to do the, with anything that the, she's the really about Jesus thing from uh crazy from just absolutely crazy right and then They've, and they've already made one departure because this was not what T1 was leading toward with Loth. I mean, and look, they, yeah, they give you a couple of sentences. Well, the Loth was envious, but they, they outdid her. Okay, whatever. I don't know what any of that actually means. But uh, yeah. it, it's and then Eve steps in, and it's just the whole dynamic of this this whole adventure is kind of strange. Uh, it doesn't take away from it. It's a it's it, it, it you know it's it's the original monster dungeon crawl. I mean, there really weren't a lot of pre-published giant monster cra dungeon crawls prior to this. So this is kind of the originator of it. And some of it does extremely well. Um, it's just to me, uh, there's got to be a separation to what what the product is and then what I think um, I think kind of what people expected it to be for where it was, you know, you thought they'd go. But you can see the home game elements that Edwin's talking about for sure. It was like they were playing something, and it's like they oh, just oh. took a left. They took a left turn, and they went somewhere else completely. So then we we're at a, a nexus with all sorts of paths we can go down. Um, but I want to take a moment here because um, Eddie, you you were showing that you had the the Goodman Games Classics reincarnated oh, yeah. version, yeah, which uh, I I do not have. Um, but I, I know those books that they give you all the original stuff. They give mm -hmm. you the 5e conversion. And they give you a lot of little like behind the scenes snippets and a lot of additional material. Um, I mean, two volumes. I, I I don't know if you've had a chance to actually go through all of it or not. But uh, you know, some of the stuff we're talking about here, you know, is that kind of in that? Does it explain anything differently, or, or what? What's your takeaway with with that set of material? It's it's really worth it for all the extra bonus stuff that you get, even if you don't need another copy of Temple of Elemental Evil. I think all that – for people like us, if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in the Temple of Elemental Evil, it's for you. If you want to – if you're the guy that would read the Game Wizards book, <laughs> it's for you to check out all that stuff. And I've got a lot of trivia notes that I got out of there that I can sprinkle through when it's appropriate. Um, but the other thing I'll say is I'm not the biggest fan of the temple itself. I'm a big fan of the village. So yeah. I don't think I've ever gone more than a couple of uh, floors into the temple. I, but I, I I love the village so much, and I've used it so many times. That's that's the real cherry for me. Our, our group did the same thing, Eddie, back in the day when we actually played it. They they got – I can't even remember how far they got in. A level, 11 and a half, something like that, and it was um, – the fatigue of the adventure just kind of set in, and it was like, okay, we're just – I felt it as a DM. My players, I know, felt it. 
at, at playing through it. And we're just kind of like, okay, let's, let's step out of here and go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because if you say the, the village of Hama is, is just an amazing product. Even Nulb is pretty cool. They did a really nice job and with that. I mean, they're, like I said, there's the parts of this book. In Nulb were when you said people, me. yeah, if, if you don't own this, I do think you should get it. If, if you've never owned it, there are a lot of good things about this book. Um, Nulb is one of them. It's 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 a great yeah. resource. There's a couple of charts in the back of this thing, which are, oh gosh, I'll pull it up now. And I think there's a random magic item generator in here. It's like got a hundred magic items in it. That is actually pretty cool. Um, I should have wrote. I, I was flipping through here earlier, and I was I, I forgot some of the stuff was in here. Um, oh, how how spells work in the different elemental nodes or elemental planes. That that's a really cool section. It's a great resource in this book. Yeah, um, that was fun. It's it, it, it's kind of funny. Like all the stuff that you dance around the actual adventure are actually really nice. It's just the adventure itself just kind of falls flat. And it, it runs long. I mean, let's let's face it. This thing's 350 keyed encounters in the temple, something like that. Well, and it's it, kind of heavy. There's 150 set, of them are fighting bugs. I won't say it sets, <laughs> I mean, it kind of sets a, a uh, I don't know about a standard, but it sets a, a norm maybe for a lot of the the monster dungeons. You know, of, of well, what we're going to do is we're going to divide it up into, in this case, you know, four segments, and we're going to have four different types of bad guys. You know, we're going to have the folks guarding the fire people and the folks guarding the water people, and that way you get to fight, you know, four different types of creatures or four sure. different, you know, sets of levels of bad guys, and that concept is so baked in like i hadn't really thought about that but it's so baked into mega dungeon uh construction and i assume this is kind of where it started and that's sort of a that was sort of a neat thing to to read and to sort of see huh somebody somebody came up with this when it was an original idea and one of the uh, things you know sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but one of the things i had to remind myself right when we're, when we're talking about, you know, all the, you know, these these 12 rooms of this section are all bugbear, 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 and, and are, you know, and all this. Um, the play style of, of what's kind of described uh, when when they're referencing the original uh, home adventure here and, and what you hear a lot of people were doing back then, and, and the play style now is very different. Uh, you know, back then, you know, every player has their character has the you know all the minions for their character all the mercenaries they've hired uh you know it, it, in that the way people played they, they you know it was a lot more like the beckney set where as you get into the expert and, and companion and, and master's rules you're not just some dude out on an adventure you know you're you're kind of like a you know a baron and you've got you know your own your own castle and your own people and, and you're waging, you know, this this large scale war against evil and, and the you know goblinoid forces and stuff, and it, and it really kind of shows up like that. I mean, they reference how some of their characters were going back to retired characters who are now almost deities to get help from them to to play through this dungeon, and that's just way foreign from anything I've ever yeah. done. Yeah. It, it... It, it's a good point. And like I said, there there's some. This is a book that's absolutely worth buying. It's worth reading through, because there's snippets in here that are really really good. Unfortunately, I think as a as an adventure, once you get to the temple part, 
it's just it's it's a very tedious adventure and there are not enough um unique encounters i think to keep players invested in it very long it gets it just kind of i was picturing this as i was picturing this as such an amazing playground for factional warfare for that social engineering party that wants Absolutely. to set the bugbears up against the, I mean, you could have yeah. such a hoot and, and then sort of sit back and watch them self-destruct and go in and clean up. Like, I feel like I, as a room clearing exercise, absolutely. This would be boring as shit after, like you would just, I mean, <laughs> you know, unless you're, if you're really into to room clearing, that's all good. But, but as a, as a thing where you sort of, try to see how this engine could be really run fast and hard until it blows up. I think this could be a hoot, but it'd have to, you'd have to have the right type of characters approaching it in the right direction. Yep. Yeah. It's kind of like what Eddie was saying about finding the secret doors to walk all the way through the dungeon without actually doing the dungeon. Yep. Um, but that's kind of yep. where this, the, that's where, that's where this adventure could shine. But do you need 128 pages to do that? I don't. I don't think you do. Um, I agree. There's it, so just, much. There's so much. Oh, yeah, so much detail and knit and grit. Uh, one of the, what's the, what's the this term? Is, crunch, this is right? related to what you're saying here. This is such a crunch, crunchy. One adventure. of the things that cracked the shit out of me was this. Uh, I'm looking for my note here. It, oh, so there's this long thing that says if you're, you know, if you have this many. Uh, characters then subtract one of these monsters and if you have this many add blah blah oh, yeah. blah but but the actual encounter is 1d6 of these creatures yep so like it's a completely <laughs> random thing and then you're supposed to like tune it down to a knot's ass based on like but it could be anywhere from one to six then you're like well but add one if you have more than 12 and i was like what the hell this is meaningless <laughs> and that combination of like there's you know there's exactly because i could just see the I can see, and you see this a lot in uh, the evolution of D&D rules, uh, I think, of the, the rules lawyering that must have been going on and the reaction to the rules lawyering. And like, well, if I tell them there's exactly three copper pieces and one torch in this room, then that's going to take care of those damn rules lawyers because <laughs> God damn it, there's one torch and three copper pieces or you know, whatever it is. And so I was sort of seeing a lot of that. And, and that's going back to you know changing the way we play that's another part that adds a lot of tedium to this is that every room they got to tell you every little copper piece and every little candlestick you can sell and what it's worth and who you can get the best deal from in town and, and you know nobody gives a crap about that anymore you, you don't you know there's not the big tie-in to, to xp versus treasure and, and you're, you're not trying to fund your your kingdom back home or whatever as much you know nowadays well, I, and you know what, even, and I know what you're saying, because, you know, we all lived through that kind of play style way back when, but even with that kind of play style, you get into an adventure like this, this will still bore the shit out of you after. <laughs> I mean, you, you just, you can't do as many rooms, room after room after room, everyone's going to get bored with with yeah, this. You have to come back. It's just, it's way. too much. You know, Can I read you a... The, the juxtaposition of the, the dungeon in the moat house and the dungeon in the temple, uh, you just you, to me, you can't ignore it because the, the moat house gives you all these different little encounter areas. You can you can faction stuff with the gnolls, right, and, get, and you never even have to fight them. They'll just leave. 
if you pay them off. I mean, there's things yep. you can do in that moat house. They did they did everything in that moat house. They did it in 28 pages, including the entire that. village. That's true, yeah. And here they've got this giant ass book, <laughs> and to do the same thing with less evocative. To me, there are more evocative encounters in the moat house than there are in almost the entire um, temple. I mean, by the time they get to the nodes, you could just tell that they just wanted to be done. <laughs> they just wanted to be done. It's like that was oh like yeah. So the one really interesting thing in this whole thing. Yeah, the one really interesting thing, and they just were like, yeah, and then you got these elemental notes. Like, what do you mean we got these? Like, this this shit's cool. Like, I couldn't make this stuff up. I can, I can make up oh, 17 absolutely. rooms of stables with horses in them. That's fine. But you talk about the elemental plane of fire, like a little subdimension. Like, give me something here. Yeah. And and what do they do? They I list like eight, to, uh, yeah, they list like eight monsters you can fight right. in there and, and walk away. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Going back to your copper pieces, Lou, I wanted to I wanted to quote one of the lines that I. I just cracked the shit out of me. <laughs> In addition to a number of empty kegs, barrels, hogsheads, pipes, butts, and tons, three great casks are here. Like, <laughs> 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 this is this is old. Like we've got twenty-eight pole arms, and now we have ten types of barrels. Well, just, well, he's on that page of the thesaurus, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. I, I mean, I think we're onto something here that, I mean, I think all four of us agree, Village of Hamlet, just, you know, amazing. Like, you know, one of the, the, the true masterpieces of, of early adventure writing, right? Um, you know, very endearing uh, and, and has legs on it that, it, it you know, for the, this yep. very day you could run it as is and it, it still holds an audience. Um, so I guess we are kind of, you know, holding up against the temple side of this campaign and and asking ourselves why does it fall flat at that spot? And I think, you know, uh, bloat is definitely I think part of what we're talking about. That the, the temple just is, is too bloated, too much of the same thing, too much, uh, you know, space there filled with with encounters that are similar to the the encounters you've already had. Um, what else? What what else makes one work and makes one not? Well, I, uh, Eddie, you pick this one out. Feel free to jump in. Yeah, yeah. let's let Eddie say. Like what we're not like with on that. Because you you got me at a really good spot here. Um, this I think was kind of like the Chinese democracy f- release to come out because you, people waited on it so much and had so much anticipation. But you got to think about it and going back to Game Wizards again, how much did Gary Gygax have going on in his life when he was trying to write this? And I think that's where it really comes to a head. And he's, you know, I'd rather spend all this time writing adventures, but I've got to run a business. And uh, one of my little notes that I picked up here is, uh, I guess it was Gen Con 15. Uh, Gary Gygax said it would be, it needed about five more weeks of work and it would be done. And then that's when he moved out to California and started the TSR Entertainment Division. So I, it's like, I could, where were the priorities? Where was his ability to be able to do it? You know? I could tell you right now, Gary didn't write shit in this. Frank wrote the whole thing. Okay. This, this was, Frank wrote it with Gary's notes. Just, yeah, just uh, to, he was just I'm sure a pile of notes, right? For, for the purpose of the listeners, Bill, is, is that your your presumptions, or is that actually from Frank's mouth? That's out of Frank's mouth. Okay. This this Gary had input, obviously. Gary wrote some stuff, but the majority of this thing, you can just tell. You can just tell. Really, pull out Village of Hamlet and read that, and then read Temple mm-hmm. of Elamilith. The writing style is not even the same. Yeah, it's like having somebody write a murder mystery, and you write most of it, and you tell somebody else to finish it. Who did it? I don't know. 
yeah. you'll it's, figure and, it out. And, and again, I, Frank Frank is a was a great author. He wrote some great stuff. Um, but this had to be a really difficult project. I mean, to pull somebody else's notes and put something together. So I don't want to knock him for any of that. But to me, it's just the whole continuity thing just doesn't work. The whole concept of it honestly doesn't even work for me. Again, you got Zagotmoy. What the hell does she have anything to do with the plane, the elemental planes? Okay, and and very little. And then and then it's basically just it's just. Well, from part of my research, it seemed like there was going to be an elemental elder god. Well, there should have been something. And then, yeah, then they yeah. said, no, we're going to go, and different pieces got well, taken to different adventures, and that's why that one kind of. Because I, I don't think any, I don't think anybody carried this project. I think it's at some point they just threw it in Frank's lap and said, hey, you need to do this. Um, that's why it took six years, because it certainly wouldn't have took Frank six years to write this. I, yeah, I'd tell you that right now. Um, so you could just see, again, it's just the whole the whole juxtaposition of T1. And Nulb is actually pretty good. I I, I like the it's Nulb. It's like the Mose Eisley of the yeah, the little town. I mean, yeah. it's, it's 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 a cool little thing. But you get to the temple and just it just this module just completely breaks down at that point. It it, it there's no symmetry to it other than, um, as far as storyline goes, there's just symmetry in you're gonna fight a bugbear and you're gonna fight another bugbear, then you might get to fight a Nol or an ogre. Then you're gonna go back and fight three more bugbears and you're gonna do this ad nauseum. Um, and by the way, they really, you know, some of these bugbears don't like the other bugbears because they're <laughs> followers of a different, pl you know, the plane that we're barely referencing. And they don't, I mean, like Edwin was saying, if you give you, Edwin, hey, I'm going to give you, I want you to write a module with, with these four nodes. Your mind's going to explode with different encounters that you can do with that, right? I mean, it's it's like oh my god what can I do with this you you, you, you just got strange to to so go much. with it and here it was almost like an afterthought um of we're just gonna have this big dungeon crawl and we're gonna kind of paint around the edges um with these elemental ideas and most of them just never come off I and mean, just there's just not that many great actual encounters in this whole book that make you really want to play it. All right, I want to. I want to. Uh, I want to take a moment from knocking the temple, and I have. I have one knock. On the <laughs> I know. I know we're, we're stepping on sacred territory here, but I actually had a couple knocks. Uh, but and then I have some good stuff to talk about on the temple. But um, the thing I got. I got really sick of reading, and he he wrote it in about a hundred different ways. But basically, there's nothing here of interest to the PCs. <laughs> and I was like. Well, if there's nothing here of interest to the PCs, why did you publish it? Like, what, <laughs> what, what's the point? That's, Put that that's on the front cover, right? right? I, I got, you know what though? That's that's classic Gary because, like I said, there's Garyisms. Yeah. That exactly. that will show up. That shows up in Hill Giant, Fire Giant, Frost yeah. Giant. Oh it yeah, shows yeah. Up yeah, yeah, yeah. It shows up all over the place. But that's that's what I'm saying. That's kind of classic Gary right there. Well, and it's sort but, of like, I need to make a real world, quote unquote. I need yeah. to put in all the buckets and barrels and tons and hogsheads. But I know that because of this, it's got to be real and it's got to, you know, I've got to be that fair, impartial yeah. judge. In order to do that, we've got to have all the facts. Uh, but boy, this is, this is stupid. You know, and, and he's sort of acknowledging that, right? He's like, there's nothing yep. Oh, man. How many, how many ways can you write that? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that well, I, I was reading all the time is there's uh, there's constant lines that uh, reference the freshkas on the 
temple walls and stuff that say something to the effect of, you know, uh, images doing foul and horrible things beyond the, the, the con beyond your, your concepts of evil or whatever. Uh, and so I started asking myself, well, what are the horrible things that are beyond description that are on those walls? So uh, let, let's do a little psychology game here, guys. It's very Freudian here. What to, when, when you read those lines, what are the horrible things that are in those base reliefs there? Who wants to go first? I'll go well, first. based on the things that Let were dis were described, uh, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that was described, and I feel like most of it was like, well, there's there's uh, there's murder, there's torture, there's fire, there's all this stuff, and then there's that thing that we don't talk about, which <laughs> I'm assuming is is rape. I mean, and and so I I was I was. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it was a product of the decade and the, the writing, you know, what was okay to write about, what was not okay to write about. And because it just, it like, that was something I felt aged really poorly. So I was like, <laughs> wow, this is kind of a weird, it's a weird time to get touchy feely in what you're writing about. But anyway, so Bill, you said I, I stepped on you a little bit. No, you didn't step on me because you're, you did, but you just did a better job of saying exactly what I was going to say anyway. I, I, I think the only reason it's actually in there is because they want you to get they want to give the the PCs a reason to hate this temple so they go in there and slaughter everybody off um, I think that's that's kind of why it's in there but uh, you know I I'm a, like a PG author when I do all my stuff I, I, I Pacer's got 60 70 products out in the last 15 years and we I make a point of keeping everything I want a, a 13 year old to be able to read it and his mom's not going to get pissed off that he's reading it. It's just, that's kind of how I look at it. So I think that's, that had to be the mentality back in 1985. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't even let my mind go there with that kind of stuff because it's just not what I want to think about. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a Tolkien high fantasy guy anyway. So I'm not a dark and gritty kind of guy. So I just kind of, I'll read right past stuff like that. Um, which is, but I'm sure, like I said, I think that I think the whole reason was to was to make this evil temple look really evil. You know, look, we got naughty pictures on the wall. <laughs> right. Yeah, like my if my players are pressing me. I'm going to be like, oh, man, that's a uh, it's Count Zarovich. Uh, but he's, you know, depicted as one of the glittering vampires from Twilight, you know, or, you know, or if I wanted to go really dark, you know, oh, it's a, you know, Mexican donkey sex act going on there, you know. <laughs> Oh, like I would do something. Well, they just, uh, well, there's a goblin like, pulling a there's a goblin pulling like, stuffing out of a teddy bear in front of a kid. <laughs> that would be about as dark as I'm gonna get. Well, you know, or they're they're you know they're wasting good quality beer. All right, there you go. They go. They're just pouring pouring it out on the floor. <laughs> I, I Edwin bring up a good point. I want to I just want to jump back to it real quick about like. Like I, I am gonna put, like I said, I'm gonna put Bill Jahamad in my top top five modules of all time. That doesn't mean it doesn't it doesn't have flaws because it does. It has lots of Garyisms in it, right? The biggest one of all is the fact that that is a that is ostensibly it's a first level adventure, right? It's a campaign kicker off adventure. You roll up a bunch of first level characters. That's what we did. I bought it on Friday. I ran it Saturday. Everyone rolled up characters, went through it, and everybody died because that. It is a frogs. deadly, deadly frogs, Oh my god! Slime, if you, you, get, if you get past Boom. the frogs, green slime on yeah. it, buddy. How about you run into that giant crayfish? It's got two attacks for two to twelve damage each. 
right? He just wipes out a first, uh, you know, a, a one e party. He's gonna get TPK by that goddamn thing almost every time. <laughs> you know, a shit ton of ghouls. You know, all the rest of it. Just, um, it's. <laughs> but that's Gary. Gary has no problem throwing big shit to, to get you to overcome it. Um, that was be the one knock. Is it, it is really tough because it, again, it's kind of got that that gimmick where. Oh, but if you would have hired this fourth level ranger to come with you to kill everything for you, <laughs> nobody wants to do that, right? I mean, it's just that's not any fun. I mean, Man, you got to bring Elmo. No, there was there was that. <laughs> if you don't bring Elmo, you're dead. <laughs> the one that the one that really annoyed me that I was thinking about the old school. I think this was still in the village. Is uh, you can order a suit of armor. And they cost it costs two hundred percent of the list price, and you have to give half in advance. And there's a two and six chance that um, it's not going to fit. And I was like, That's... "What player enjoys that style of play?" Right? <laughs> it's like, and I can tell you enjoys else, it. Like, Gary enjoys it. <laughs> Gary yeah, loved the hell out of it. What players? What yep. what players? What I see. None. Yeah, so there's this one. Uh, I don't remember where this came from. It was a 50%. You have a 50% chance that you're likely to die, and you're supposed to check every turn. So every 10 minutes of in the game time, and and so like, well, so you got half an hour to live. I mean, like, <laughs> like what, what the, you know? <laughs> like there was just so much of this of this kind of, uh, yeah. We're just we're here to crush you as the players and your characters and. Like that, that definitely, I felt that pretty, uh, pretty strongly reading this. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm all, I'm a, I'm a fan of hard adventures, and I'm, I'm happy to have monsters that'll kill you, but it's the annoying shit, this armor that doesn't fit, like, like, who, like, <laughs> I don't know. So it's just a way to have a money sink, I guess. I don't know. So Gary was like the king of adversarial DMs, though. You could just tell, right? You, could, you just know. Yeah, I never got yeah, to play with him, yeah. obviously, but you can just tell by reading everything and talking to people. He was like the king of adversary. Uh, absolutely. DMs and it yeah, just, anyone it, striking at the bats after the lights go out has a 50% chance of hitting the nearest party member instead. And not only do you hit your, <laughs> your friends, but you do double damage to them uh, yeah. because they're not expecting the attack because it's in the dark. I was like, yes, okay, there is a there is an asshole move from the GM. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's written in the module, like it's right off of his table into his notes, published. And I was like, ah, yes, this does not make me want to play this game at all. <laughs> One of the things that uh you know, looking at them put together, uh, that doesn't connect well is like the moat house. The only point of the the dungeon and the moat house is they're like keeping tabs on the town, right? I mean, there's no, there's nothing yeah. they're doing there that really supports the temple or, or you know, adds to it in any way. Um, and that's maybe they, maybe a little bit of money gathering, right? That they may be doing a little information and and maybe some treasure gathering, but I agree with you basically, yeah. So I mean, you, you, I always like these games where the the main adversaries got all these plans and motions to, you know, do the equivalent of like some sort of super weapon or unleash some sort of ancient demon or, you know, find some sort of magic item or whatever. Uh, to me, that's what needs to be going on there. If, if I'm running this, you know, for my game group now and I plan on going to the temple, I've got to have something going on in that moat house that is, is adding to the power of Zugmoid or, uh, you know, helping to, 
you know, figure out a way to release her from the seals there, what have you. Um, well, I, I, that kind of goes back to my whole point. Like, again, with with Lareth, right? I mean, he's he's the he's supposed to be he's the bridge that gets you from T1 to the Temple of Elemental Evil. Well, unfortunately, they got rid of that bridge. They completely got rid of it, um, which is bizarre because the fact that a lot of people will be like, well, you can run T1 through 4, then you run the Slaver series, then you go to the Giant series with GDQ. You know, that's supposed to be the campaign. There, the, first of all, it doesn't work in any way, shape, or form. It, do, it doesn't. Because by the time your characters walk out of Temple of Elemental Evil, they're probably 10th level. They're, they're twice the level they need to be to go through A1. So that none of that works. Um, but I, it could have, if they would, you know, just if they would have stuck with the Loth thing with Temple of Elemental Evil, it would have definitely worked more toward moving toward that giant series. Just skip the Slaver series completely. It doesn't have anything to do with this set. But um, you know, there's no connection there. Like you were talking about connections, and that's that's what came up for me. There is no connection from T1, other than they say there is. That's it. Am I wrong, or the the emblem? No. The, the whole emblem of the the eye on no. fire. It's a nope. big deal it's in T1. Gone. Doesn't mention it gone. anywhere else. I, I'm just I'm telling you there there is some there is a massive disconnect between T1 and part of that is that six year hiatus between the two. Of of, I'm not so sure they were ever designed to go together in the first place. I. I I will, you know, I, I would almost be in, if I want to put my conspiracy theory hat on. There's another T2 out there somewhere that that is buried in a, a landfill at this point. <laughs> um, that was the proper sequel to T1, but never happened because this thing just to me, there's just there's too many disconnects in it. And they kind of like I said, you just you got to get into the first three or four pages of the actual T1 through four book, and they devote about two or three sentences to totally kind of whitewash. Loth and the eyes thing and all of it just is gone, and they move on to Zagoboy and Eus and Cuthbert and all this other stuff. Um, which again, it, it's a fine module on its own. I think. I mean, it could be. It could be. I think this is a module you got to do a lot of work with as a DM. I think to make it fun. There's a lot. There's a lot to it. Like I said, it, you get around the edge of the of T1 through four. There's some great stuff. I just think the core of it is not very good. Um. But it, it's just like you're saying, I, they're, they're, if you're going to run it like this, it just doesn't seem to really work. And the funny thing is they didn't do anything to really fix that. They had six years to make that transition, right? Here you're T1, you're going to Nalb and then in the Temple of Amelia. That transition just absolutely sucks. There's there's no reason the PCs would almost even do it because it's not there. Well, there's there's not even a, a huge trail of breadcrumbs even. I mean, when you consider that the temple has, I don't know, I'd guess like 300 people living underneath it in the dungeons at least, and yet there's like not much reference to the supply of equipment and food and, and you know the things those people would need moving through the river, moving through Nold and, and, and into that area, or how they even I, I don't even know if it explains how people get in and out of the dungeon that live down there. I mean, I know there's the passage through the tower there, but everything else are the sealed doors that... Well, that's supposed to be a secret entrance too, right? So that's not yeah. even supposed to be a... I mean, it's it not, wouldn't be like a main thoroughfare. Yeah, like, but, you know, how are you getting that hydra down through that, you know? Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, magic, magic. We can explain it away, but it just... 
it's, it's those sort of things I like in adventures where it all kind of makes sense and all has an ecology that fits. And, and well, there's a continuity problem. Yeah. There, there, there definitely is in, in the whole thing. Like I said, even even by the time you get to the the elemental nodes, the the continuity of the dungeon and those nodes is just pathetic. It's like, why are they even there? One one thing I uh, just saw in my notes that I'd written down about the nodes that really cracked me up is there's those there's that artwork like you were saying this is an art sparse adventure, and then the the NPCs that you can run into in the elemental nodes <laughs> have these this art like handout quality art like you run into this yep. guy as if they were somehow the most important people in the entire adventure <laughs> are these just randos that you might run into it's a it's a two-page art spread by by tim truman and it's it is the single yeah. best piece of artwork in the entire module it's super right? by yep, far yep. i was like why did they waste that on this well, like I said, if, take, if you ever get a chance, just flip through the book and look at the art. I'm going to tell you right now, there's five or six pieces in yeah. there that I think were just laying around in a filing cabinet they put out and they just stuck in here because it's like, oh, look, there's a picture of a door. Absolutely. Let's put it in here because they did not. Their art budget for this must have been nothing. Absolutely Yeah, nothing. and these NPCs must have been made for some other thing, and then they just – they already had the art and the NPCs, and they dropped them in the nodes, or I don't know sure. what. Sure. I like how for art, the, like, the major sure villains are this really wickedly gnarled old dude and a, and a fungus creature that looks like a ripoff of E.T. I mean, that, that's who I think <laughs> of when I think of danger and, you know, an ultimate enemy, you know. Grandpa and E.T., let's fight. <laughs> Um, talking about the art, though, have you guys talked about Jack Fred before? No. So if you'll notice, the credits in pretty much all of the Temple of Elemental Evil are by Jack Fred, which was a TSR artist's name that they used when they had to get something out in a hurry. <laughs> so Elmore, Easley, and Parkinson at least have said that they've used that name before, but that was kind of their – what is it, Alan Smithy or whatever? Uh, okay. So that was their – quick knock it out i'm not 100 percent happy with it so that was a cool thing that i found in the uh goodman games release that was one of the notes they had in there i i am i i do not i do not have the goodman games release and it is on my list to get um just because i do love reading the uh, all the goodman games books that they've done i've loved reading the backstories and the like uh john peterson you have a, a write-up in there about a bunch of history on a project um, and I love I, to me, that's the only reason I'm actually buying it. I could care less about the content and I'm never going to run the 5e version of it. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's really cool to have all that in there. So I'm really excited to read some of that. I've talked to Frank extensively about this, this project, but he's kind of actually even a little tight lipped about parts of it. So, um, it, uh, it's, it's funny how this, this project is just such a, a, a pillar in the old school community as a as a product though it's i think that's an interesting thing i think i know it's what kind of what we've been talking about or a roundabout way but how this this thing is just such a a beast you know it, it's if you still sit tell someone hey i want you to name 10 tsr modules just just name 10 this one's going to come out of their mouth it's going to come out of everyone's mouth doesn't mean it's great or, or bad it's just always going to come up so it's going to be top of mind um, which I think is 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 fascinating in a way. And I'm not sure why, because it's just it just it's just not very good. Well, I think it, it. I mean, I think it has a lot of 
of uh, of seeds. It has a lot of I don't know if they're firsts, but sort of you know initial things. And and I don't even know that we should expect it to be good, right? I mean, this is this is still you know let's see what it's like. You know, can we make a really big temple, a uh, big dungeon crawl adventure? And I'm like, okay, so we learn from this adventure. We had. Uh, a few years to uh, improve, you know, to improve our, our ability to to create these things. And um, so I, I feel like there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of attempts at stuff. One, well, so one, one of the notes I have in here, speaking of firsts, I wrote the first death save, question mark. Uh, so if you're swallowed by the frog, you get three chances to escape. And if you don't escape, you're dead. And I was like, Wow, so 5e death saves, boom, right there, temple, you know, awesome. <laughs> um, you know, so there's just, I don't know, there's just a lot, uh, of course, because it was Gary, you needed an 18 or more on your, uh, on your yeah. D20 to, to escape, it wasn't like, you know, 10 or higher, but, um, so I, I feel like there's, I think that might be part of why it's still in our consciousness, and it's still, like, I think it is, it can be historically important without being good in some ways. Oh, right? I agree I think with it's that. still a foundation stone. I, I, yeah, I do agree with that 100%. I mean, it, it was, like we were talking, this is the first massive mega dungeon crawl, you know, one of the first published ones. It's certainly first published TSR one. Um, but you also, I think you're right, Edwin. I think they did learn a lot from this. And I think the one thing they learned is they didn't want to do it ever again because you just don't see very much of this come out of them. Um they yeah. they pretty much stuck with the thirty two page module format forever, you know, give or take, you know. But uh, there's a few larger ones. Well, I mean, they're 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 feeling out my going to switch your pieces here. They're they're um they're even you know still feeling out the um all the rules, right? There's so many spot rules in this adventure. Oh, for sure. And, you know, all this stuff gets gets wrapped up later on. Um, I was I was actually thinking, I suppose Goodman, you know, uh, Goodman did all the work here, but um, you know, how much cleaner this would be with a, a rule set like Five E, where you don't have to make up new rules for every single thing. Like, do they find the coin on the steps? Well, let me think about that. Do they knock this this oil lamp over? Well, let me think about that. You know, does the horse fall through the bridge? Right? There's there's you can sort of see uh, the, the 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 GMs making up rules on the fly because there's not a rule set to back it up, and I presume that's a lot of these notes that got just literally transcribed into the thing of like, oh, you got a two and six chance of this or a one and twenty of that, and that. So even just that of like, this is this is sort of a big enough adventure with enough stuff going on to find a lot of the holes, at least as we see them now, in 1E, right? You know, they didn't have a rule for that. Come on, you just, well, it's just a blank check, whatever, you know, so that was kind of fun to uh, to think about also. I felt like editing and layout were a factor that, uh, you know, our, the, the modern aesthetic of, of, of how things should be laid out and, and how we parse out, well, the you know, the, the 12 different types of, of alcohol containers you were talking about earlier and like oh you're a good editor hey pick two pick two you know um they yeah they it, it's, it's funny because they broke their own rules with this with this book i mean 
like I said, you don't, you can't really find too many three column layout products in TSR. You don't, well, everything's a, a two column layout right? with them. I mean, I think in, in Frank, a lot of the stuff Frank did was all in three column. I think that, you know, they're in yeah, the early. It's, it's, it's painful, right? It's, just, yeah. it's painful to look at this book. It's, it really is. I, I mean, I hate these. This is an, you get past the cover. This is an ugly, ugly product inside. The pr- and I'm not talking about anything to do with creativity. I'm just talking about the presentation of it. It is hard to go through this book. When you get, you literally go page by yeah. page. You can go seven, eight pages in a row and not see one piece of art. It's just great text after great text after great text. And after like the first 30 or 40 pages, you even start the player description boxes start disappearing. You, you'll notice that the further you get into this adventure, there's a lot less player description stuff yep. going on. Uh, because I again, I just think they were yeah. they were just tired of it. They just wanted to be done with this thing, and uh, they they put it together. But it's just it is a the things are just trapped. But they like I said, it, it doesn't you you don't see very many products put out before, during, and after this that look anything like this book. You know, most TSR products have a lot of art in them. The layout, you know, you could see there was a a lot of conscious layout. Uh, thought involved in most of their products to make their products look good on every page. Every time you turn a page, the, the, that two-page spread looks good, right? You don't have that in this book at all. So I think... Uh, I think it suffers from a lot of what, you know, nowadays, like you would have a flow chart to help you see how the different uh, sections of the dungeon and levels of the yeah. dungeon are interacting with each other. You would have more forward knowledge uh, all in one area where it describes the... the uh, magical bonds that have been put on the place to, to hold the demoness at bay and the orb key thing and what it does and why it's important and where its parts can be found and all that. Cause mm-hmm. uh, I mean, especially with the fatigue of reading through that three column print, it gets really hard to keep in your mind, all these things that are floating around and try to make some sort of tapestry out of them that helps you, you know, understand this adventure and understand what it's, you know, trying to, give the players as far as a feel and, and, a, and a sense of plot and, all that. and you know we, we were looking at this our conversation mostly here is looking at it from the from the perspective as a, as a gm running this can you imagine being a player trying to go through this thing you wouldn't i mean you were i mean three months later you know you're never gonna remember what happened i mean just really tough really tough well and that's another thing you'd have to set up the whole they have to have some window into understanding the contract or the yeah. Bonds between uh, I don't know how you properly say it. it ooze, I ooze. How do you say it? I ooze. That's how I have always said. I don't know how you say it either. And, and what they were doing and why they were doing it. Um, there's so much of that 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 to a person going through the adventure just isn't accessible, in, unless the game master chooses to make it accessible and and they don't really give you good points to say, hey, you know, this is a good time. This character's a a good person to you know relate to them this information or they might pick up this rumor in this part of the dungeon or this part of the town um, yeah yeah really need some of that if you're if you're going to run it i think yeah yeah all right anybody? i think we're about done beating yeah. this horse to death <laughs> yeah. any final thoughts on on how to use it differently what what you would do to it to, to change it up that we haven't already talked about all right <laughs> it's I don't God, think so. I mean, I don't either. I go ahead, Anna. 
I was just going to say, I think that I think that changing the proportions, which we have already talked about, you know, shrinking the temple and making the temple the elemental uh, thing uh, more deep, more interesting, better organized would be could be freaking awesome. And then obviously we've talked about just changing the storyline to tie stuff together better. Um, and that's you know. Uh, the rest of it, I feel like, is uh, is at such a micro level. You know, it's it's changing the mechanics here, changing this room, getting rid of this stupid adversarial trap there. <laughs> Just all those little little bits and pieces. But overall, I mean, the the big picture idea of a temple of four elements, where the element, where the different factions are buying to become the the top dog like that's gold i mean that's a that's a really solid idea in my in my book like that's a great adventure and then tying that to having these these subplanes and then tying all of that to a way to destroy the the temple or the prison or the god or like 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 the the bones the big picture the big brush strokes of this thing i think are if you if you separate it from the village of Hama, I think are great. Like as a as its thing, I think it's an awesome. Like there's so much really just just magical stuff in this adventure, and so putting it in the right context and then giving it the right. This goes back to the the mail from the from the, was it Lawrence? Uh, you know, going back to getting the right mix of rooms and traps and monsters and story and history and all that. So like I think that's a that's 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 where I would want to go with this. I, I'm of the exact same opinion everyone is. I I would cut the tie from T1 off completely. I would just uh, nope. Sorry, it was I, a lone DM. Yeah, I would I would just cut it. I would cut it right off. And I I love the idea of taking the, the whole like you said, the Temple of Elemental Evil is a the title alone is gold. Oh yeah. So it, it what you could do with this thing. With the different planes coming together to work together, and then yet being conflict, and there's a prison that a god's being held up. I mean, you could do all kinds of crazy stuff with this. It just seems like they tied their hands down with this thing because they kept they kept tried to keep that link between this whatever was happening around the village of Hamlet or other areas and with bandits and all kinds of other crap that really just was a disservice i think to this module i think this module really needed to be to stand on its own hill and and given that um given that time and energy to do that it just doesn't seem to me that that's whatever that's what happened with this thing but that's how i would go with it i would i would i would take village hamlet and i would go off in another direction from it and then um and i can say that because that's exactly what i've done and then temple of elemental evil is a thing unto its own just just take that out of it completely. Anyone and, out and, there that hasn't played this, uh, exactly what you're saying, Bill, run Village and just see where that takes you. See what your Temple yeah. of Elemental Evil is going to be because it will take you in a direction that's going to be great, but it's probably not going to be the, the T2 yeah. part of the adventure. <laughs> yep. Final thoughts, yeah. Eddie? Yeah, um, I was going to say there was a 3.5 version, which was Return to Temple. Which I don't know if you guys have any familiarity with that. Yep, got it. But I suppose in that that Lawrence the Beautiful survives and he does <laughs> become more of a key player. They tie it in better. It's it's yeah, that's a whole other conversation. 
Yeah. Um, I've actually played through this only in the video game, which was 2001. I recommend you guys check that out if you haven't. I have. It's you a lot of fun. fun with that. Yep. You can have a lot of fun with it. And I think I will run the fifth edition of this since uh, Goodman Games has already done the work to convert it. And when I do, I'll only run the village, but I'll definitely advertise it as Temple of Elemental Evil because, <laughs> like you said, it's that golden name. Yeah, people will come out for that. It's just got something about it. It's got it's got a shine. It does. I, it, Back it when does. I only knew it as T1, I always thought Elemental Evil. I always thought that like, oh, it's like you know, there's fire, water, earth, and then there's also good and evil, and those are separate elements. That like you know the the yeah. Origins of the universe and what everything was constructed out of, and I had this whole whole plot line going off of that kind of crazy thinking. I think also, I don't, you're not alone, Lou. You're just not because I, I think I've talked to a lot of people over the years about this way back, and and I think a lot of people had the same kind of their head was filled with the you know created their own their own idea what Temple of Elemental Evil should be. And, and again, I did have a question for y'all. Is there something inherently evil in the in the elemental ethos, the, the elemental planes, the elemental magic? I, like to me, the idea that an elemental temple would be evil seemed a little odd because I was like, well, they're just it's just the elements. Like now, they did throw in. There's about three paragraphs yeah. where they try to explain. I don't know if you caught that or not, but like it goes on about how oh, and fire destroys buildings and, yeah. and water, you but know, that, tidal that waves sort of and the, tire cities. That was and, the sales know, pitch. Earthquake like said, that was the sales pitch that, that they were using yeah. to attract evil people to their worship of the elements. But you could just as easily write a sales pitch mm-hmm. to attract good people to the to the uh, worship of the elements. So I just or I wasn't completely neutral. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is this a, is this <laughs> something that's sort of baked into the D and D cosmos, or is this sort of specific to this? No, I, I adventure don't, and, and probably I, a few others. But I think it's a little specific to this adventure because I know, like I like I said, my yeah. my own creation here had the had Loth basically co-opting or trying to co-opt ele- portions of the four other planes fire earth air and water for her own evil machinations down the road the planes themselves weren't evil but she was basically using them that makes sense like the prime material plane like, yeah right yeah 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 it's like taking over the prime material plane all right yeah, yeah. Y- hear me out what if what if loth is is co-opting those planes to be able to build her giant spider spaceship out of Queen of the Demon to go And to go and attack... that's the, the big MacGuffin Wait, no, at the more, end of the Because story. the reason she needs the giant spaceship is to go attack Strahd, who's in his own giant spaceship. <laughs> and they need to fight. I want to co-write credit. <laughs> but actually, speaking Brilliant. of just like uh, some of the things you can do with it, since it's an inherently evil place... One time I had said it during the Grand Conjunction in Ravenloft. So the players are playing your standard Greyhawk, but here comes the mist, and here's where it's crossing over back and forth, and the Demoplane of Dread is trying to pull the Temple in and the Moat House in that surrounding area. So there are there are a lot of ways you can spice this one. Cool. I like yeah. it. I like it. All right, yep. stick a fork in her. I think she's done. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that was Temple Elemental Evil, but we we cannot hang up just yet, folks. We got to finish this uh, this podcast call here because Eddie, it is. It's time getting kind of late. If you guys want to call it, geek credit. Do you have any geek credit? All right. So, so the, uh, the the deal is this: so you have five questions for the most part, multiple choice, true or false, and uh, if you can get at least three of them, you get to keep your geek credit. Uh, Edwin, uh, he he called in a ringer on this. I'm gonna let hey, Edwin hey, first question. So, uh, first question I have here is: which gold box game added a romance system to the engine? And I can give you multiple choice if you want, but if you think you just know the answer. I totally don't know the gold box stuff that well. So I'll take the multiple choice with the the correct answer is D. Okay, so the three options are (laughs) uh, A is Champions of Kryn, B is Treasures of the Savage Frontier, and C is Buck Rogers, Countdown to Doomsday. Man, that seems like it should be Buck Rogers, so I can be wrong, but I'll take Buck Rogers. I would have gone with that, too, but apparently it's Treasures of the Savage Frontier. I would have got it wrong, too. I would have went with Kren, just because... I think I've actually played that one. (laughs) (laughs) So that that eliminated it for me. All right. Me, too. All right. I I hope this will be a little easier on you here. Uh, So I'm going to go into my realm, so I'm going to hit you up with some Transformers questions here. Uh, so now we're, we're we're talking Generation One here, all right? So uh, I've heard of it. I'm familiar. <laughs> so the uh, the original Transformers IP was built from a Hasbro toy line, and uh, they had actually just gone and licensed the molds for those toys from several overseas toy makers, mostly Japanese toy makers. I'm going to give you a list of toy makers, and I want you to tell me which one did not have a toy that it ended up appearing in the Transformer toy line. Do you think you got this? Do you think you can handle this? Ooh, we'll see. All right, here we go. Which one of these did not contribute to the Transformer toy line? Uh, so your toy makers are Bandai, Takara, Toy Box, and Sanrio. Bandai, Takara, Toy Box, and Sanrio. All right, I will, I will go with D. With D, Toy Box? That's your final answer? Should I go with it? Yeah. I'm not giving anything away. All right. So actually the answer is uh, D, Sanrio. Yeah, So you you said D. I said the wrong one. Toy Box was letter – Good. I I thought you were giving me the hint. Toy Box was letter C, yeah. So no, you got it right. So uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, folks. Getting this all – Did Toy Box do uh, Shockwave? Yes. Shockwave, Omega Supreme, Trypticon, that whole set there. Yeah. And Bandai had Jetfire. Yeah. Which is interesting. I didn't realize because I thought they were all the GoBots. I didn't realize they also had uh, crossover going the other way. Yeah, that's why you had all the uh, Robotech yeah. jets running around, and that's why Jetfire had to look so different in the cartoon. Yep, yep, yep. So cool because oh, I have no funny. idea about anything you guys are talking about. <laughs> I'm with you, Bill. All right. <laughs> Not a clue. I, I remember seeing. I remember Kids. seeing the Transformers at some point. <laughs> all right. So the uh, cartoon. <laughs> do you want to? I give him a softball. What's that? You want to give him a soft? I'll give him a softball yeah, yeah, question. Yeah. All right, let's let's go. I'll keep this really easy. Uh, Larith used two weapons. What were they? Uh, it's definitely a staff of striking, and the other one is a mace. Correct? Got it's it. Mace. Woo-hoo. 
nailed it. Man, that so staff of striking ruined Dude, so many wicked? PCs lives. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the mini that I use a lot of times for my character is Lawrence. It's just awesome. Yeah, yeah. Nice. He's going to use three charges. All right. <laughs> <laughs> So we're on to uh, which was the first TSR computer game? And again, we can go multiple choice if you like. Computer game, okay. A, yeah, I'll definitely take the choices. Theseus and the Minotaur. All right, uh, A, Theseus and the Minotaur. B, Pool of Radiance. C, Dungeon Master's Assistant. I like Pool of Radiance, but I'll go with A. Theseus. A is correct. Theseus and the Minotaur. All right, you just got to pick up one wow. more point here. All right, we're two out of three. Well, we're doing well. Maybe three out of four. I'm not sure. That's three, three out of four. Yeah, he's yeah, got yeah. three. Does he got three? That is three. He's Mine, got three. Yours is, yeah, so he's got now. it. It's in, the, it's in the basket here, man. All right, great. so this is just icing <laughs> yeah. on the cake. Uh, I tell you what, you get a choice here. Um, I get three <laughs> I can ask you a question about Ravenloft or a question about Ravenloft. Which would you like? <laughs> I'll go with the uh, Ravenloft. Good choice. All right. Uh, so, 500. <laughs> so we're going to jump back to the reference earlier in the program. Um, what was Tracy and Lawrence Hickman's first version of Castle Ravenloft titled uh, as uh, it was this, – this is back when it was being sold out of their kitchen prior to when they were working for TSR. Was the original title to Castle Ravenloft House of Strahd, I Vampire? Vampire with a YR or Griffin House. Original wow. Title, House of Strahd's I Vampire, Vampire or Griffin House. I'm going to go with Griffin House. Ooh, I, I, I mixed that one up myself. Tried to trick I you vampire? with House on Griffin Hill Bears. No, you did. You know, that's not correct. Vampire is what they uh, call uh. here. All right, but you still got your credit, man. Three out of five. That's all that matters. Good to go. Absolutely. All right, guys. Man, this is another long one, man. I keep – every time we record, I'm like, wow, that was a long one. <laughs> and then the next time I look back, I go, oh, that, that one wasn't a long one. This is the long one. Uh, it's been fun, though, man. Thank you so much for coming on the program, Eddie. I really enjoyed talking about uh, – two, uh, not two Mahors. <laughs> I really enjoyed talking about Temple Elemental Evil tonight <laughs> and uh, having you on and, and then learning about the convention circuit and all that. Um, you yeah, think, thanks for having me on. That was fun. You want to you want to pick your uh, podcast and, and or anything else coming up here? Um, the No Class Podcast. We usually keep it about an hour. <laughs> so for those of you that made it to the three hour mark here, <laughs> come check us out. We do lots of cool topics too. This can be your companion piece, and uh, you can send us both the same questions, and we'll send you swag. Nice. Uh, Ooh. Uh, the long nice, con nice, nice, is nice. rolling on. Uh, it'll be in November of this year, I think 11 through 13. Come check us out on Tabletop Events. Uh, and uh, if you can't make it to the long con, support your local little con because they need you too. There's so many of them that time that closed down in these trying times. So if you're still lucky enough to have a <laughs> yeah, game true. con around you, please go support them too. And your friendly local game store. Throw awesome. that one in. All right. Thank you for joining us. Good night, guys. Good night. Take care, all. Good night.
Tonight's episode of This Old Dungeon is copyright 2021. We'd like to thank our special guests and remind you, the listener, that the views expressed and the opinions held are simply our own. Hey, we're here to entertain, not educate. Until next time, happy gaming.